Yes, it all started out as a mild curiosity in the junkyard. Now it's turned out to be quite a great spirit of adventure, don't you think? Yes. Well, we've had some pretty rough times and even that doesn't stop us. Oh, it's a wonderful thing, this ship of yours, Doctor. Taking us back to prehistoric times, the Daleks. Marco Polo, <laughs> Marinus, and the Aztecs. Yes, and that extraordinary quarrel I had with that English king, Henry VIII. <laughs> Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this 50-year-old show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. This is the podcast that started out as a mild curiosity on the internet and has turned into a grand adventure that has changed us all. I'm the jaded city administrator who has been watching classic Doctor Who for decades, and I'm quick to shoot anyone who is critical of the show. My co-host is Guy, the wise first elder who just wants to get along with the lower cast, that is, the normal people, who are always happy to silently accept his advice. I guide us through the series, and Guy makes the final determination of what's worth watching for normal people. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So have you talked to anyone in the lower cast lately? Yeah, I gave them some aqueduct water, and they were really delighted with it. <laughs> Good to know that you're so kind to everyone. <laughs> some context for this episode. The author, Peter R. Newman, is kind of a mystery. He only wrote this one Doctor Who story. Not a whole lot is known about him. In fact, he's such a mystery that on the DVD, there's a documentary just investigating his life to see what he was all about. So it's worth taking a look at. For our purposes, it's worth knowing that he was a prisoner of war in a Japanese camp, which informed this story. And he wanted to explore, well, that would be a spoiler, so we'll talk about it later. Also, one of my main resources for this podcast is the amazing book series About Time, in which they provide a comprehensive discussion of each story, and also not just the story itself, but the culture and influences that went into the story. And their contention is that this is the template for science fiction stories in Doctor Who. And they even claim it's more important than the Aztecs in that sense. And as a big fan of the Aztecs, I don't know about that, <laughs> but <laughs> we'll explore it as we go along. All right. So with that, let's get to our first episode, Strangers in Space. So at the land, end of the last episode, the TARDIS had landed, but it was still moving. And they were speculating, the crew was speculating, was it? on something or maybe in something. Then we see a close-up of the console. There's a flashing light on it, and it looks like the kind of light that somebody should be paying attention to. <laughs> and then the titles come up. Then we see more uh, weird things going on with the, with the TARDIS. The monitor is full of static, and then they start just conversating. Barbara wonders why they ever leave the ship. She <laughs> says, I don't know why we ever bother to leave the ship. And uh, I'm kind of with her on that. I think if I were in her shoes, I'd be staying in there as much <laughs> as possible. Well, so far, they would have avoided killer robots and, you know, radiated atmosphere. And you know, so I'm not sure they've had a whole lot of benefit yeah. from leaving the ship. <laughs> not much, no. Here's the point that gets me, though, right? Because next, uh, the doctor says, you're still thinking about the experience you had with the Aztecs. 
And Barbara says, no, I've gotten over that now. <laughs> well, going by the fact that we saw them in the last story, you know, the TARDIS took off and landed. It's been like five minutes and she's saying she got over it. <laughs> now, I think they're taking advantage of the fact that the people watching it haven't seen the show for a week or two. So it feels like some time has passed. But in the story, right. it was five minutes ago that she was an Aztec <laughs> goddess, but now she's over it. <laughs> yeah. Well, she knew it had to come to an end sooner or later. <laughs> so they uh, they have a pleasant little conversation here. The doctor makes a amused little remark that it all started out as a mild curiosity in a junkyard. And uh, he begins to tell a story about the time that he spoke to Henry VIII. I found this interesting because uh, he says that King Henry VIII threw a parson's nose at him. And I, I thought that, uh, that sounded really dark, mm -hmm. uh, especially if he cut off the nose in front of him. So I thought maybe this is just a term of art or a British expression. I was wondering about it. it so I'm, gl I'm glad if you and, checked uh, into it. <laughs> <laughs> I did look it up and guess what? You're mm -hmm. not going to guess what? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm, I don't know uh, where, if Henry was in the habit of slicing off noses or what. <laughs> well, ideally, you would have said what, and then I would have said chicken butt, because <laughs> this is the one time that that is actually the correct answer to that question. The Parsons' nose is the chicken butt, or a turkey butt, or possibly a goose. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> it's a little it's a little fleshy thing, uh, you know, right where the tail would be, that uh, looks like a nose, kind of. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One of the things I like about this is he says that, uh, I think by throwing the nose at Henry, he tricked him into sending him to the tower, him and Susan, I think, mm -hmm. because Henry was angry at him, but he did that on purpose because that's where the TARDIS was, and honestly, this sounds like a perfectly good Doctor Who story. I wish we'd had a chance to see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, maybe in the modern series they'll uh, they'll put it in. <laughs> so then the Doctor says, uh, he's really looking at the monitors. He says, uh, plenty of fresh air, temperature normal. And Barbara says, oh, just the unknown then, <laughs> which I thought was a cute little bit of sarcasm. Mm -hmm. uh, but overall, this this whole conversation they have, they really uh, seem to show some genuine affection for each other, and uh, uh, it's it's definitely a step ahead from uh, the edge of destruction where the doctor was uh, tickled pink that he was going to be able to throw them off the ship. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, there there is, as we talked about for that episode, people who feel like it was the story of the edge of destruction that kind of brought them together. My personal feeling is that it's the Aztecs where they really gelled, right? But um, mm. we can all we can all have our own version. Oh, <laughs> well, sure, yeah. it's it's an evolution. <laughs> and so then, uh, then they walk out of the doors of the TARDIS. Lo and behold, they are inside something, and it's a spaceship. It's a rather decent spaceship set, actually, for the budget that they had to work with. It kind of uh, reminded me a little bit of a scene, again, from John Carpenter's The Thing. You're probably going to get a lot of references to that over the and, and course gonna, of this And we're going to watch it at some point, too. So. Oh, yeah. When they go to investigate the uh, Norwegian Antarctic base, they have dead people sitting in chairs mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this is the same situation. And uh, when they find that the man is dead, 
there's a big dun dun <laughs> cue on the soundtrack. Uh, it's, it's it's very much like the dramatic chipmunk meme. Uh, if you've ever seen that, but if you haven't, then uh, you should check it out. It's a uh, five seconds of quality entertainment. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of work and effort involved in just making that one shot possible. Oh, yeah. Although, at least in these first three episodes, the TARDIS isn't going anywhere. So <laughs> That's once true. They, once they put that there, it's pretty much there for now. Yep. I definitely found that funny. Uh, also, that, you know, once I think it was Ian or something, he said, he's dead. And then we get the dun dun. <laughs> um, <laughs> the other thing, though, that really impressed me was. And it's the kind of thing where you don't necessarily realize how impressive it is until you know how things work. But they open the doors of the TARDIS and walk out into this larger spaceship set with no cut. And we've mentioned this uh, at least once before. That's really impressive because that means they had to have a set where they had both the TARDIS set with the actors in it and the ability to open the doors and the entire external set out there now it's possible once they walked out that they changed sets or something but mm-hmm. there's a lot of work and effort involved in just making that one shot possible oh yeah although at least in these first three episodes the tardis isn't going anywhere <laughs> that's so once true they, once they put that there it's pretty much there for now yep then in in another chair at another console, they find uh, a woman uh, who is also dead, and those are the only two people they see on this. Uh, it looks like the bridge of the ship. And Barbara and Susan are getting a twinge of intuition. They uh, they both want to cut and run, head back to the TARDIS. The doctor wants to investigate a little further. He notices the dead people have automatic watches or self winding watches. Which is clear was was a big technological innovation in the 1960s, right? So, oh, sure. Yeah, we wouldn't yeah. even think about it now, but, you know. <laughs> and uh, he figures they probably run without winding. You know, the, the movement of the wrist winds them. He guesses without winding, they probably had 24 hours of juice in them, uh, and they've stopped. So he, he agrees we, there's nothing more to see here. Suddenly... The dead man shifts. And when that <laughs> happened, I thought at first it was just gravity making <laughs> him slump over. But no, he's actually awake. And he uh, weakly asks Ian to grab something from a shelf and uh, brings it over to him. And suddenly he's getting better. You mentioned, I think, that we hear a heartbeat. I, I didn't remember noticing that. Uh, it's not, yeah, uh, so what happens is he presses it to his chest and on the soundtrack, we get this heartbeat. And then they do the same thing for the woman, who turns out to be named Carol, because he, he asked them to do it. They put that device to her chest, and again, we hear the heartbeat. But it's on the soundtrack, uh, you, you know. Anyway, and, and we learn it's a heart resuscitator, and they say, well, we were just in a long sleep. We weren't actually dead. <laughs> <laughs> they gave him a good scare, though. Yep. Yeah, minor scare, I guess, because they were dead, so they weren't that scary. <laughs> but, uh, so it turns out they're from Earth. I think it's Ian who asks uh, if Big Ben is still on time. They don't seem to recognize the name. Turns out that the whole lower half of Britain is called Central City now. London no longer exists as London. Mm-hmm. 
And Britain is called Airstrip One. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. It's not. There hasn't been London for 400 years. They're from the 28th century. And my question for you, since you are relative to me, a Doctor Who expert, is this consistently the 28th century future of Earth in Doctor Who, or does that change in future seasons? Yeah, no. <laughs> so, uh, they get different versions of Earth history all the time, so um, oh, okay. you'll go crazy if you try to make that all consistent. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. And, uh, later on... You know, they're uh, long in the future of our podcast. We'll get to UNIT, which was the United Nations um, force uh, that the doctor starts working with. And they actually have what's called the UNIT mm. dating controversy because it's not possible that the UNIT stories make sense in a dating order. So, of course, no. the fans do everything they can to try and figure out how to how to make it make sense. Right? So. No, sure. Yeah. All right. Well. Good to know. <laughs> I won't give my hopes up too much or won't wager, wager any money on Earth's future. Mm -hmm. Well, the these new futuristic humans that they've met, uh, their names are Maitland and Carol, Carol Richmond. And they tell the crew that they are in danger. They need to leave. And when they understandably ask why they need to leave, they're told... It's better if you don't know what happened to us. And we'll see what as it goes along, but I'm not quite sure what the big deal here is. But <laughs> yeah. I think, I think uh, well, I won't spoil it too much, but there's a third future crew member on the yeah, ship. And he, that's true. he's gone through a little bit different experience than these other two have. Now, my favorite part is here, right, where... The doctor then says, I never meddle in anyone's affairs, and I don't have an ounce of curiosity in me. <laughs> and this yeah. is such a ridiculous statement that Barbara and Ian laugh at him. <laughs> and I think it's great in the show that you can have a character who would say something like that, and the, and the show is you know self-aware enough that the other characters would be like, yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, this is the guy that threatened all their lives because he had to go and see the Dalek City. Now saying he doesn't have an ounce of curiosity in him. <laughs> oh yeah, and that's that's actually a pretty a pretty rare thing in a lot of uh, a lot of television shows. Like I remember watching the early episodes of Cheers in in reruns or on one of the streaming networks, and it struck me as funny that when one person says something funny, the other characters will actually laugh and realize that it's funny, whereas mm -hmm. in like a different style of sitcom you wouldn't get that but it, so yeah it's, it, it's interesting there's a measure of self-awareness and mutual awareness here <laughs> so it turns out they're near a planet which is called the sense sphere and we do eventually get a glimpse of it and it's just a big white dot there's not really <laughs> much much to tell about it the inhabitants of the sense sphere are called the sensorites and they're preventing the earth people from leaving but they're also not trying to hurt them. They just uh, sort of mess around with them, mostly. They uh, they can control their brains. They put them to sleep now and then. They feed them sometimes. It's, uh, it's a strange little relationship, and the yeah. humans don't quite understand what's going on. Yeah, all they know is we can't leave. Now you can't leave. <laughs> yep. And then we get something ominous. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
And if I understand the layout correctly, it's something ominous that's actually going on right in the same room where all this. Yeah, like, like five feet dialogue. away from them. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> because they left the TARDIS and came into this big room. The TARDIS is literally a few feet away from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, this arm is fiddling with the lock on the TARDIS. And at first, it withdraws from it. It just sort of fiddles around with it and doesn't accomplish anything. Uh, well, then it comes back with this uh, interesting little device. It looks like a, it looks kind of like a very large Art Deco hood ornament <laughs> to me, and it's uh, it's kind of neat. I actually I actually mm-hmm. went on Etsy to see if somebody had like <laughs> handcrafted replicas, and I couldn't find any. Uh, which is just as well, because I, I, I don't think I would have bought one. I'm sure you if you go know. to a Doctor Who convention, you'll you'll be able to find something. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but anyway, it's a sweet little ornament there, mm-hmm. and uh, and it manages to pull the lock, the whole cylinder containing the lock out of the TARDIS. So they just bypassed all that 21-hole <laughs> nonsense. So having removed the, or the aliens having removed the lock, uh, the crew starts smelling burning. And, uh, it's the side effect of the device. The humans have indicated that they can't leave because of, because of these sensorites and because of, uh, another crew member that they've kind of kept quiet about so far. But the, uh, the humans go to investigate and find out that the lock is missing and that causes a crisis because they can't get into it now and Ian suggests breaking down the door and the doctor says disturb the field of dimensions inside the TARDIS we dare not (laughs) so apparently it's a very delicate balance in there then things start going to hell the ship Mm -hmm. starts shaking uh the the humans seem to think that the sensorites are returning. And if I remember right, wasn't there also sort of a high-pitched noise that came along with that? Yeah, probably, yeah. They've lost control of the ship, and it is suddenly careening toward the sense sphere, which is yes. the alien planet. So the guy and the woman are literally sitting in their seats, you know, unable to reach out and touch the controls. They're so, you know, messed up. Uh, from whatever the sensorites have have done to their brains, <laughs> and I think Carol does maintain a level of control, but she's not at the console where she can really affect the steering much, if I remember right. So the doctor uh, takes over, right? He he knows. <laughs> and the funny thing is, it turns out he really knows how to fly a spaceship as long as it's not the TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of those controls he seemed to. Uh, it seems like he's been to the twenty eighth century before. Maybe he's just an instinctively good pilot. I don't know. So they're hurtling, hurtling toward the uh, sense sphere, and uh, you know, doctors trying all these different maneuvers and tactics. And just before they hit, they don't hit. <laughs> you see the the big white dot in the view window uh, suddenly slips off to the side, and they they manage to miss a whole planet, which is good for them. Yeah, and then there's a cut here, which I found kind of confusing, but I I guess there's a couple points in this episode where they do a big cut, and it really just means, like, time has passed, and we need to, you know, accept that as viewers. 
Mm-hmm. And I love this part because the doctor starts doing this really weird thing, which is he starts telling us all this stuff we already know. So <laughs> he says, you know, I think these sensorites have found a way to take control of your minds, which they've been telling him the whole time <laughs> that the sensorites are controlling their minds. And then he proceeds to repeat everything that the man and the woman have told them about the sensorites as if he'd figured them out on his own. It was just really kind of bizarre. <laughs> yeah, and he figured out that the key to Maitland's mind, the reason Maitland completely froze up at the controls while Carol maintained a measure of ability, was Maitland's fear. Fear is what really opens up the mind to these sensorites. They say... They haven't seen the sensorites, but John has. John is the third member of the crew, and he uh, isn't in the uh, at, on the bridge with the rest of them. He's the mineralogist, and talking to him is out of the question, though they won't say why. Mm-hmm. And this part is funny because, uh, like, they're eating food and kind of getting along together and everything, and then Barbara and Susan say they want to get some water. And they head off for water, <laughs> and they walk right by a big cabinet that has a big water label on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd be hard to miss, I'd think, but uh, but they managed. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they just wanted to go through that door. That was just their excuse. <laughs> yeah, so they came to a door, figured they had to get through it. Yeah, and they uh, they figure out that uh, that there's a little electric eye sensor up at the top of the door, or top side of the door. Uh, that you can wave your hand over it and it opens up. And, uh, I think you have an opinion on this. (laughs) Well, so Susan is totally amazed. Like, oh my God, I can't imagine that you wave your hand and the door opens. Except this is exactly how the Dalek doors worked. Not only that, they used the exact same door sensor thingies for this. (laughs) (laughs) And again, she's this alien who's supposed to have all this knowledge and have been through time and space. And she's really amazed when a door opens, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And then uh, when they go through, they proceed further on down the hall. And then another hand appears by the sensor eye, and the hand waves and closes it. And it's a shuffling, zombie-like dude. <laughs> he looks uh, like he's seen better days. Mm-hmm. And as we'll find out very soon, uh, who waves a hand and how he waves it is what determines whether the door locks or not. And this guy locked the door. Although we never kind of understand how they lock it versus not, but I guess it's not important. <laughs> yeah, there is a scene in a later episode where where they actually ask him to show them, and he just kind of waves his hand twice and says, there, that's how you lock it. <laughs> Finally, back in the bridge, the crew realizes that Barbara and Susan are missing, and they can't open the door that they went in through right next to the water container, uh, because it's been locked by John. So they have to go in on another door, and that will lead them around and by a different route. But that door doesn't work either. <laughs> Ian uh, wants to get through somehow, but the humans are trying to stop him. Right, and by the humans, we mean Maitland and Carol. They don't want him to go in there. He gets suspicious, and he says, are there sensorites in there? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Barbara and Susan have an interesting little sequence where uh, 
the zombie guy, uh, uh, he walks up to them. He's really, really kind of out of it. He, uh, he doesn't seem exactly hostile. He just seems kind of freaky, kind of stoned or something. I don't know, but he, <laughs> he walks up to them. He falls over. They run around. Eventually, they, uh, they run into this little room and they hide behind a cabinet or next to a cabinet where if he, another one of those numerous scenes where, uh, if he turned his head 30 degrees to the <laughs> left, he would have uh, mm. noticed them. Uh, he walks, he walks by them. He briefly begins, uh, crying and holding his hands up to his face and, you know, just in sort of a moment of despair, kind of like, uh, the scream, that old painting, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then he turns around, uh, in conveniently in the right direction, not to spot them. And he walks back out of the room. So that didn't amount to much, <laughs> but it showed that there's something really, really wrong with them, at least. Mm-hmm. The two 28th century humans who aren't crazy or aren't apparently crazy are, uh, Wondering now, uh, can they resist the sensorites now? And should they find out about John? The lady, Carol, is for doing something. Maitland is apprehensive about it. He says it's dangerous, and Carol thinks he's trying to look out for her. Yeah, and I felt, at least in the moment, I felt like, no, he's not trying to help Carol. He's just being a coward. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't an actor, <laughs> but that was my impression and he says i know what john means to you and then she tells us the last time i saw him he didn't even know my name but she does convince him and he decides okay we need to cut around the lock sort of like the um sensorites or or whoever <laughs> uh cut around the tardis lock i guess no yeah so ian and carol have a little conversation of their own she was going to be married to john they were engaged And he, for some reason, was affected much more by the sensorites than than any of the other people, or or either of the other people, I should say. Ian asks what the result of that was. What how how is he different? Carol says he'll be frightened of strangers. He may become violent. (laughs) Yeah, and and my feeling was that sounds like me. Yeah. Maybe there are some sensorites in your life. <laughs> back to Barbara and Susan in the corridors in the back of the ship. John flips a great big switch. Now, it isn't exactly clear what the switch does, although later on a similar switch will shut off the lights. Yeah, I had a question about that, and I think that is what it did, but we just couldn't even tell that that was what was happening. Now, later, turning off the lights turns out to be important, but we, <laughs> we will get yeah. to that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So the zombie comes at them once again, shambles toward them, and uh, then he just slumps to the floor crying. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, he's a very emo zombie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, at last he uh, asks, I think he addresses this to Susan. He says, who are you? You look like my sister. Although yeah, he doesn't he, say it that way. Here's he the thing I could like, not get over the rest of the time he looks exactly like tim roth <laughs> so mm. if you've watched um any of the quentin tarantino movies or that sort of thing anyway 
He is the exact duplicate of Tim Roth. I could not separate him, but that's just a mean huh. thing. <laughs> so, no, and it would right. not happen for decades after <laughs> this thing aired. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he reminds me of somebody, too, and I can't think of who it is. I spent a few minutes trying to figure it out. There was there was one scene in particular where he's sort of wailing uh, to voices in his head, and he reminded me of someone. I haven't <laughs> put my finger on him. So he... Uh, he asks if if uh, Barbara and Susan have come to help him, and it's been a full year of this misery for him. And uh, apparently, uh, at least a part of that year has been pretty lonely because the other two seem to be avoiding him. Well, yeah, they basically locked him into this small space for a year, and you know, my reaction was. Yeah, I don't know what it's like to be stuck in a room for a year, <laughs> given, uh, uh, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. we've had an interesting history recently, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got a little little more leeway on that than you did because of our respective locations, I think, yeah. but it was it was still, uh, even, even here, there was some mm, crazy stuff right. going on. Well, to give a <laughs> bit of context, I'll just say, I live in California, I have an apartment, I like my apartment very much, and that is good because <laughs> I didn't get to leave it for a year, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Barbara and Susan, uh, they're trying to be trying to be nice to him. They can tell that he's really uh, he's had a bad time and he's not at all well. Uh, so yeah, they're uh, they're hugging him and you know being nice. Yeah, I'm gonna say. I mean, I appreciate that they're very humanitarian and they're trying to help this person they just met. But he's like zombie like and totally out of it. And within seconds, they go from being scared of him to hugging him and, and, you know, stroking his hair. And I'm like, maybe wait and see if he's a homicidal maniac before you do this. That <laughs> <laughs> would be, it would be a reasonable thing to do. Actually, actually I did a minor bit of research and uh, it turns out the movie psycho came out in 1960. So they would have been aware of dangers <laughs> like that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so they had no excuse. <laughs> So now the crew has decided they're going to try to get through the alternative door, not the one Barbara and Susan went in through, but the the one on the other side of the uh, of the bridge. Uh, and Maitland's using a piece of equipment that works very, very slowly. <laughs> yeah, he's trying to cut the metal around the lock, and whatever he's using is taking it off at about you know a tiny, tiny percentage of it every minute. <laughs> <laughs> And this uh, this this whining noise starts up, and I think maybe this is what I was thinking of earlier when they when the ship started plummeting towards the sense sphere. Uh, I I think this is the sound that I was hmm. thinking happened then. It's the sign that the sensorites are coming. Yeah, Maitland says sensorites, <laughs> <laughs> and then Carol has to explain it. This that noise is caused by the machines that carry them through space, and <laughs> it was just really funny to me because you know machines that carry people through space are also called spaceships. <laughs> she couldn't say that for some reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there, uh, everybody agrees that under the circumstances, they can't focus on slowly cutting through the door right at the moment. <laughs> so Barbara and Susan will have to fend for themselves for the moment. <laughs> yeah. 
So everybody is back at the controls, looking at the view screen or window or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, and sure enough, <laughs> well, I'll let you describe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, we had slightly different impressions of this. I put it as a couple of space fava beans float into view. So whatever your favorite bean is, about two beans float into view on the uh, <laughs> on the monitor. <laughs> Yeah, I called them glowing jelly beans. Yep. But, uh, we're both in agreement <laughs> they have a have a bean-like aspect. Yep. And here's, a, again, coming back to my thing that cracked me up earlier, is for no reason at all, the doctor now takes a minute to completely reiterate the plot that we've seen so far in the episode and describe <laughs> everything that's happened. And it's like, well, I, I guess it's good that we all get on the same page about this. You know? <laughs> uh, 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 yeah. But it has no reason or benefit story yeah and i've noticed uh in most of the episodes so far they've been good about like giving you context on what's going on like like if you missed the first or first and second or however many right. episodes of a right. storyline they'll get you caught up uh, but but he seems to be doing that a couple extra times. In this well, one. to catch you up on what you've just been watching, it's a whole other matter, right? It's not like yeah. it was last week. It was 10 minutes ago. Yeah. 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 Although sometimes shows will even do that. Like yeah. if you know, there's a long commercial break and some people just <laughs> came in after the break. Yeah. Yeah. They, back with them in the hallway, they hear that same, same high-pitched noise. <laughs> this this is a good little part because uh, John, the uh, zombie man who's barely uh, sentient or coherent, says uh, he's going to protect them. Yep, <laughs> and he doesn't he doesn't look like he could protect them from a puppy or a hamster or anything. <laughs> but but he's going to try, and uh, you know that's that's the spirit. And Barbara is <laughs> very nice here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she. Uh, she may seem a little skeptical, but uh, but she says, "All right, you'll protect us." You know, she's <laughs> she's indulging him. <laughs> so uh, in the control room, uh, Maitland says, "Now remember, no violence unless the sensorites start at first. Ian says, "Why no violence? Surely we have a right to protect ourselves." Yeah, and this kind of cracks me up because I'm not used to. TV shows where our heroes are advocating for violence. <laughs> and clearly Ian is very offended. Why couldn't we attack them? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's, uh, if you're being attacked, that's well, well, again, that's uh, never mind. That's that Maitland said, unless they started first. So it's a mm -hmm. little escape clause there. <laughs> anyway, Carol says, I can sense them all around us now. <laughs> Yeah, and, and one of the things I love here is then everything goes silent, and there's a very, very long pause, and there's, like, close-ups to people's faces. We hear nothing. We don't know what's going on. And then there's a close-up to Ian's face, and he says, Doctor, Doctor. And all of a sudden, and I'll let you describe this part. <laughs> oh, yeah, we get another view of the view screen, the window, whatever it is, and... There's this alien slowly floating up over the bottom edge of it, and it really looks uh, rather eerie. It's um, it's got a distorted face. It's got 
some, it's got kind of a beard, but it doesn't look like it's quite right somehow. <laughs> uh, it's, it's eyes look dark and blank. It's a, it's a creepy little guy and he slowly puts his hands up on the sill at the bottom of the, the window there. And, uh, and that's where the episode ends with the very creepy looking alien. Yeah. And I have to say is, you know, the guy who's watched this a few times over the decades, this is the image I remember. And this is the one thing I really remember about this episode. Everything else I had to watch it again to recall. And now we've been set up and, and this is one of the things as we go along that I want to check with you as we go along. Cause it's a, it's a little strange thing about this story. Our impression of these aliens changes from episode to episode, and I, I don't want to give any spoilers. That's why I want to check in with you with each. Uh, I'm going to call it the alien check in <laughs> with you with each episode. <laughs> so right now we have aliens who've been mind controlling these humans, not allowing them to leave. You know, almost caused the uh, spaceship to crash into the planet, and then. Are float, you know, one of them is floating outside the window. <laughs> so, so what it, as a person who is new to Doctor Who and new to this story at this point in time, what is your impression of these aliens? <laughs> at this point in time, well, I, I thought they're pretty darn ugly, but uh, <laughs> beyond that, just from what I know about them, well, they've they've driven the one guy crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, the other two, they just seem to toy with them, but they haven't actually killed them, and they keep them fed. So, mm -hmm. um, at this moment, I'm I'm taking a rather dim view of them, but I'm I'm still I'm still withholding judgment at this point. <laughs> okay, and as I say, this will evolve from episode to episode. <laughs> oh yeah. So our next episode is the Unwilling Warriors. <laughs> So in The Unwilling Warriors, we repeat the suspense-filled scene where everyone's looking at the monitor, but we can't see it. And then eventually the alien shows up at the monitor. And then they show the monitor, and here's the thing. They have a completely different alien in the window than they had last time. And maybe not completely different. I mean, what would you say is the difference? Yeah, it's different. You know, the... The main difference that I noticed, and I don't know why it would strike me as a big difference, but in this in this scene, he doesn't raise his hands up to the window, hmm. and uh, I think there was something creepy about the way that the previous right. one did raise his hands up. Yeah, that's true, and his head was a little more alien previously, so clearly what happened was they had refined the look of the sensorites between these two episodes and then they just decided to swap in a new one yeah. hanging outside the window. My note was this was less ghoul, more office manager. <laughs> and we'll see how that goes. Oh, yeah. So in the cockpit, Maitland and Carol, because of this alien appearing, they are now hypnotized because the sensorites have control over their brains. Right, and it's the fear that particularly makes them vulnerable. Yeah, so once they saw someone hanging out the window, they got fearful and then got hypnotized. The crew, with some effort, gets through to Maitland and communicates he really, really needs to open the door that Barbara and Susan are behind. And then we switch to Barbara and Susan, and John, the zombie guy, is freaking out. 
he knows how to open the door, but he refuses to do it. He just keeps saying they're dead. They're all dead. And then he seems to start receiving messages, presumably from the aliens. And he says, frighten them. I can't do that. No, I can't. You know, you can't force me. I won't do it. So he's going through this whole mental thing. Yeah, and it's a it's a little bit of a creepy scene. I mean, it's it's a scene that we've seen in a lot of other media, but it still works. Mm-hmm. We switch back to the crew in the cockpit. Maitland is trying to force open the door by lifting it up. That fails. He says, I have to use the cutter. Well, he was already trying to cut through the door. It was taking forever. And I find it rather funny because, you know, we have this history in the show that will continue on for a long time where they have all sorts of ways to pad out these episodes. Mm -hmm. And in this case, Ian basically reacts to the padding. He's like, oh, not again. How long is this going to (laughs) take? So even Ian can't take the padding. (laughs) He's the advocate for the audience there. Yeah. And you know what? I think I just realized who John reminded me of when he was getting those mental messages. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to go back and watch the scene to be sure. But I think he reminded me of Renfield in Dracula <laughs> Dead and Loving It. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so now I got to check that out. Renfield, you sure you were not followed here? I led them in the wrong direction. They have no idea where I am. He went into the chapel. Hurry! You have led them right to me, you stupid nuncompoop. I didn't know. I'm sorry, Master. Punish me. No, no, go. Lead them away. I don't have any time. No, you must punish me. Hurt me. I deserve it. Not now. But I failed you, Master. I'm a useless, pitiful fool who has betrayed you. You must hurt me. All right. The doctor lectures Ian that he needs to exercise self-control because if he gets upset, he's going to leave his brain open to mind control. And right now the doctor is very concerned about sensorites exercising mind control over anyone. And then Carol says the sensorites are in the ship now. We go back to Barbara and Susan. John says, give me your hand. They want me to frighten you. And Barbara says, John, we're not afraid, not what we have you to protect us, which I don't believe for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's probably, it's a white lie, but it it also may serve a useful purpose if it awakens that protective instinct, uh, you know, his... His upbringing as a gentleman of Central City and all that, it may have some value to it. Yeah, I guess it's what else is she going to (laughs) do? And now we all of a sudden see the aliens. They've come into the ship. The first thing we see is they have floppy feet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is... uh, uh, it really doesn't serve all the all the suspense they've been working towards. These are supposed to be these intense aliens who've been taking over people's brains and manipulating the whole situation. And the first thing we see is pajamas and floppy feet. You know, and by pajamas, yeah. I mean their entire body is encased in basically pajamas. <laughs> yeah, and they're 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 not even they're not even floppy feet like clown shoes. They're more like a. Somebody cut the handle off ping pong paddles yep. <laughs> and is just standing on them and there's pajamas covering them. They're very, uh, very amusing. <laughs> and those feet caused the actors lots of problems. They kept tripping. They said, you can imagine. Yeah. Oh, 
Yeah, yeah, I can, I can guess. <laughs> now, above the feed, you know, well, what do you think about that? Oh, yeah. I, uh, there are a couple interesting features that their beards are, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them necessarily a plus or a minus. I'd say that they're interesting because they, <laughs> their beards grow upward. So it's like, it's like head hair, but it's on the bottom of their chin, you know, so like all the hair is pointing upward around their face. So it's a, <laughs> Kind of a different look. And, uh, you know, there's, it'll, we'll see more and more sensorites and they all seem to have variations on that. Right. Uh, but what really is good and works well for me is their eyes from a distance, their eyes just look dark, but up close, it actually looks like there's just hollow sockets where mm -hmm. eyes should be. Um, and I think that's exactly what it is. Um, I, th I think probably they're, hollow to a certain depth and there's probably some see-through cloth like uh, maybe black pantyhose or mm. something like that uh so the actors can see out but we don't see any light coming from in there right. it's creepy yeah i agree their heads are probably the best part of them overall my note was you know <laughs> it's not exactly the terminator when you see <laughs> these guys in the the floppy feet in pajamas <laughs> <laughs> After all that buildup, especially. Yeah, and that that is the first thing you see in close-up is those goofy-looking feet. So it's, uh, yeah, but uh, the over, overall, the faces are good. And even even little things like the texture, their skin is kind of sickly, mm -hmm. and their, their well, heads are in odd shape. This is an interesting question to me. You said the skin. And I, did they intend the pajama thing to be skin? Or to be a, I mean, it wasn't clear I, to me. Yeah, I think that's supposed to be a, a jumpsuit type thing. It mm. just looks too much like fabric, especially where uh, where the feet go into it. <laughs> it really looks like fabric. Right. There, so the but. only skin we see is our heads, right? Yeah. Yeah. After seeing the aliens, we switched back to Barbara and Susan. Susan starts talking about a previous adventure that she and the doctor had, and it's interesting because before this story. We never much talked about previous adventures. There was like one mention. Yeah, the planet in the uh, Edge of Destruction. Yeah, Quinnis. But this time, all of a sudden, we have all sorts of references. And she talks about how they were on a planet where there was these psychic plants. And if you stood in between them, you could disrupt the psychic connection between the plants if you thought hard enough. So she says... Maybe both of them can focus on the same thought at the same time and disrupt the sense rights. And Barbara says, how about we defy you as the thought? And they do that. And then we switch to the room with the sense rights, and they immediately start holding their heads and collapsing. So <laughs> Barbara and Susan yeah. have a very powerful impact on them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they do it on a on a five count. So they when they when they think it, they do it exactly simultaneously, and it's uh, it's super effective. Yep. <laughs> and then Susan is knocked out from the effort. We go back to the crew. Finally, Ian and Malin manage to get through the door, and then there's a big cut. Again, I mentioned this earlier with the previous big cut. I find it a little confusing because there's just suddenly a big cut. But what they're trying to communicate is time has passed. Things have happened. Okay. And we need yeah. to, to catch up with that. And that's a little weird because Doctor Who up to now, as we've talked about, this is a show with almost no cuts because that's just not the way 
the show worked, right? And certainly it wasn't mm-hmm. part of the storytelling, but now suddenly it is. Yeah. yeah. Although, you know, it, it has been becoming uh, more and more popular. I wonder if they might have gotten a little more budget to do things <laughs> like editing the videotape. I'm sure it changed from year to year, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're with the crew. We've had the big cut. Some time has passed. The doctor and Carol discuss what's happened. Turns out John is now sleeping peacefully, the zombie guy. And the doctor wonders, maybe Susan released the pressure on his brain when she and Barbara did their, their little mental trick. Susan said, Susan says, I had hundreds of voices in my mind, grandfather. So she's had a serious telepathic experience. Mm-hmm. Maitland comes in, says John's resting. <laughs> I love this. He says, did you know his hair was almost white? So he and Carol have not seen John for like a year, and now all of a sudden John's hair is white. And the doctor says, there's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Of course, the doctor completely has white hair. (laughs) No, that gave me a good chuckle there. (laughs) And Ian says, right before John fell asleep or passed out, he said something that sounded like the dreams of avarice. And we get a whole uh, long extended discussion on this. And I know you looked into it, so why don't you talk about yes, it? Yes. I looked it up, and I uh, I went to Wikipedia, and uh, this quote, The Dreams of Avarice, comes from an English dramatist named Edward Moore. And that quote is from a play he wrote called The Gamester, uh, which was popular in England and the U.S. for a century or more after he died. So that's all I know about that. (laughs) (laughs) So Ian has the insight that this statement means that John discovered something, which is why the sensorites have focused on him. And Maitland reminds them he's our mineralogist. So apparently he discovered something mineralogical that the sensorites are upset about. And the doctor wants to talk to the sensorites to get the TARDIS key that they stole back. We switch to the sensorites, and one of them is holding a stethoscope to his head. (laughs) One of the things we learn over time is that the stethoscope allows them to communicate to some broader mental thing. (laughs) It's like a telepathy amplifier or something like that. Yeah. And apparently the first elder... We don't know who that is yet. Tells them that he wants the human who communicated "We defy you" to be trapped. And uh, and the guy that we see doing the communicating, he doesn't have your stereotypical villain voice. He has a very uh, very mild, low-key voice. You know, nothing uh, nothing too alarming. So uh, it's maybe the beginning. Well. The, I suppose the beginning of our doubts about his sinisterness would be uh, his giant clown feet. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but this also could be a clue that maybe he's not the villain we expect. Yeah, although there is a little twist in that here where the first elder tells them through the psychic connection that if the doctor and company try to attack them, they should summon their warriors to destroy them. <laughs> yeah. 
But that's only fair if you're attacked, you get the right to... Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what Ian's argument was just a few minutes ago. Although... I have a little hard time imagining these warriors in pajamas attacking. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do have those cool hood ornaments. Though. Yeah. You don't know yeah. what those can do. <laughs> so we go back to the crew. John is out of it. He's asleep somewhere, but they've been examining his research. In particular, he had a spectroscope that he was examining, you know, rocks and things uh, on the planet with. And... Carol says, I remember he was beginning to take a reading of the minerals in the vicinity. That's when the sensorites first attacked us. Ian takes a look at the spectrograph and he can't find anything unusual in the results. And then we have something that I think is really interesting and odd. And again, a comment in this episode about Doctor Who itself. Carol says, you're very strange people. You seem to have come from nowhere. And you seem to be going nowhere. And Barbara says, well, we're very dependent on the doctor. He leads and we follow. And Susan says, isn't it a better thing to travel, hopefully, than arrive? Hmm. <laughs> and again, it just feels like a contemplation on the meaning of the series that kind of ties back to the fact that at the beginning, they did a reiteration of the stories they'd gone through <laughs> in this story. So it seems like, you know, for some reason, they're choosing this point to just kind of talk about the show itself yeah justifying the show's existence i guess you know you can't <laughs> can't have the adventures of doctor who and friends in london <laughs> <laughs> actually that could be good if they did it right <laughs> and then uh barbara and susan and carol are talking and susan says we know the sensorites have discovered thought transference and Barbara says, yes, and when John discovered something, he became so excited that his mind opened up and broadcasted it to the sensorites. I don't know how she knows that, but she has intuited that somehow. Yeah, well, I think uh, she may have figured that out from what the doctor had been saying about the fear. Mm. She might be gen generalizing the emotional connection to opening up a mind. <laughs> I don't know. And an interesting thing here is that you know, this is the early 60s or mid-60s, and ESP was a, a big deal at the time, extrasensory perception. And there, and, and an impact on science fiction was a lot of science fiction authors assumed that ESP was science and that it was going to become a regular part of life and that people being able to, you know, tell you what card you're holding up or whatever would be valid and so we see this here where, you know, the idea of telepathy and ESP and everything is just a natural part of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the meantime, the doctor has been analyzing the spectrograph and he discovers something and he starts saying, rich beyond the dreams of avarice. Of course, I know what he found. Molybdenum. <laughs> it's here. <laughs> I know yeah. you looked into this a bit. <laughs> Yeah, and it basically again. I, I went to Wikipedia, and uh, it had uh, it, it basically confirmed what he says. Uh, it says about eighty eighty six percent of molybdenum is uh, used in metals. The rest is used in chemical applications. So apparently, between now and seven centuries from now, they don't really come up with any new uses for it. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, but it's kind of interesting that he, the doctor, was looking at the same printout that Ian was looking at 
but the doctor was able to see nuances in it that Ian. Yeah, he he implied, and I'm not qualified to say how valid this is, he implied that the evidence of the malignant, of the molly, I'll call it, (laughs) so he implied (laughs) that the evidence of the molly was spread throughout different parts of the signature. I I don't know if that's a valid thing. I'm not sure it is, but (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And, like, the minute they discover this, Carol and Maitland are immediately mentally attacked by the sensorites. Presumably, once the doctor made this discovery, the sensorites decided to lock down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the sensorites noticed, uh, you know, well, the doctor uh, the doctor seemed pretty enthusiastic about his little discovery. Um, so that probably, yeah, that notified the sensorites. The emotion going along with that got the sensorites' attention, I assume. <laughs> And Ian says, come on, Barbara, let's find them. So he wants to go get these sensorites. And and they then spend several minutes wandering around corridors. (laughs) And uh, I want to point out a scene that's worth looking for if you're watching the show. At the 12 minute or, yeah, 12 minute, 58 second mark. Look at the wall in the, the doorway they're going through. There's a wall right next to it. And uh, it does some very obvious shifting around, like it's somebody's moving it or it's maybe <laughs> going to fall over and somebody's pushing it back into place. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on with that. My theory is that that's a removable panel so that they can maybe swap that set to look like another room mm-hmm. in other scenes. That's my guess. But at any rate, it's it's a definite uh, blooper in the production. <laughs> And so as Ian and Barbara are wandering around, Barbara suddenly gasps, and they are looking at the pajama people, or I mean the (laughs) sensorites. (laughs) And there are two sensorites. As they approach, Ian raises the wrench to threaten them. And we go into what I'll call a very, very slow speed chase, where they keep walking (laughs) towards Ian. He's holding the wrench. He keeps backing up. I don't know why he's backing up. I don't know why he doesn't hit them. I don't know. (laughs) It reminds me of uh, the Stephen King quote, uh, the mummy's after us, let's all walk a little faster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, basically. And so while he's holding them off, Ian sends Barbara off to find out how to lock the doors so they can lock a door between them and these sensorites. And in the meantime, they keep coming after him very slowly and he keeps backing up. And I'm like, why didn't he just go off with Barbara? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point, yeah. (laughs) You could have just said, smell you later. (laughs) So Barbara goes to Maitland and says, how do we lock these doors? But with the sensorites around, he's too messed up. He can't answer her. Doctor says, go ask John. (laughs) Barbara says, reasonably, he's in no condition to help. And now, again, I find this really interesting. The doctor just says, do as I say. And she runs (laughs) off to do it. This is a complete switch from the dynamic they had in the Aztecs where she was the god and telling everyone else what to do. And suddenly, all you know, she's listening to the doctor telling her what to do. But, okay. <laughs> so Barbara finds John and she holds him up and takes him to Ian and the sensorites. Ian has had it. He's about to attack them with the wrench. And Barbara stops him and says, do you need to keep them off? Have they actually attacked you? (laughs) 
I guess that's okay, but you know, I don't know. These are strange aliens who've been approaching you holding a strange device. Um, but John does whatever he does to lock the door. I think he waves his hand twice instead of once. Yeah. <laughs> and then Ian says, I think the Sunsorites were as frightened of me as I was of them. Okay. Well, <laughs> Why were they, you know, following you? <laughs> I think that applies to clowns in general. <laughs> so the Sunsorites are on the other side of this door, and they bring out that device that was used on the TARDIS lock. And they just burn out the door lock, and then they can open the door. Then they go to the main door that leads into the cabin where everyone is. But one of the sensorites stops the other from burning out that lock. We don't know why. Yeah, maybe just to leave a little buffer between them and the humans. Yeah. And then they start doing the stethoscope to the forehead tricks. <laughs> Apparently they're communicating with mm -hmm. other people. And suddenly Susan is in mental contact with the sensorites. Mm -hmm. So they have reached out to her telepathically. And one of the things this story does is it presents Susan as sensitive to telepathy, to mental powers. But don't worry, that would actually be an interesting character trait, so they never bring it up again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Susan tells the crew that the sensorites want to talk. And Ian, at this point, uh it, there's something a little odd here, I think, because Ian says, are you saying that you're in touch? And this, then he's interrupted by the doctor who says, do you say you've made contact with them? So they're both <laughs> asking the exact same question, phrased mm. slightly differently. So I'm, I'm wondering, was this, was this the doctor just asserting that he's the guy who asked the questions around here? Or maybe, uh, maybe Ian was covering a missed cue. I, I, I don't know what's going on there, but it, who knows? Yeah. But the next line I really like, the doctor says, they must agree not to try to harm us. If they do try to harm us, then I shall fight them. And yeah. I think this is the very first time in the show that we've seen the doctor express potential aggression. Hmm. Could be. I'm, uh... Yeah, off the top of my head, I can't think of it. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, so the sensorites come into the main cabin, <laughs> and the funny thing is, to each other with no whispering at all, they just say, which one is the doctor? It's the one with the white hair. <laughs> so they've been looking for the doctor, <laughs> and they let them know, none of you can ever again leave the area of the sense sphere. And Ian says, look, we're not interested in this molybdenum. And now we get a new piece of information. One of the sensorites says, once before we trusted Earthmen, but it was to our cost. And the doctor logically says, so Earthmen have visited the sensphere? And one of the sensorites said, yes, and it causes all a fearful affliction. We shall not allow it to happen again. And they let them know that a special area is being set aside on the sensphere for them where they can live for the rest of their lives and they'll be looked after. Which, you know, sounds like kind of a good deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, assuming that this is not just a ploy to, you know, take them to an abattoir, you know. <laughs> assuming that they really mean what they're promising, it's, it's at least not killing them outright, which uh, a lot of aliens would go for that approach. <laughs> The crew doesn't buy into it. They refuse. 
The doctor says, I assure you, we have no intention of spending the rest of our lives with you. <laughs> That's kind of hurtful. <laughs> <laughs> and another one I love. Barbara says, surely we've proven we don't need help. And the censorite completely reasonably says, you've only proven that you can lock doors. We can unlock them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Then the doctor says he wants to lock to the TARDIS back. The censorite says you're in no position to threaten us. Another good one. Doctor says, I don't make threats, but I do keep promises. And I promise you, I shall cause you more trouble than you bargained for. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's a good thing he doesn't make threats. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have something that maybe will come back later. The doctor speaks up loudly as he's upset, and the censorites cover their ears. Who knows what that's all about? <laughs> yeah, these guys, uh, every time they turn around, they, they're exhibiting new fragility. <laughs> <laughs> the censorites leave the room, saying they have a decision to make. And then the doctor goes into this whole speech about how their eyes were dilated, and that means they're going to be frightened in the dark. It seems to be a pretty big logical jump. <laughs> yeah, although if if in normal light their eyes are fully dilated, that means they're struggling to get enough light to see even in just normal light. So it, it, there's a logic to it. I, I guess it's good he had that amount of observation, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, of course, you can't actually see their eyes at all because, like I said, they look like <laughs> yeah, they're exactly. just hollow pits. <laughs> And now Susan starts getting another psychic message from the Censorites. This time she says there's one voice a long way away, so presumably on the planet. And out of the blue, Susan agrees to go down to the planet with the Censorites because she says otherwise everyone's going to be killed. She walks out with the Censorites. They lower the door, and it's the end of the episode. Yeah. Next episode, Hidden Danger. <laughs> Episode 3 is Hidden Danger. This is a reprise of the last ending, as is typical Doctor Who fashion. Uh, the aliens draw down the door, and the titles appear over the closed door. It actually looks pretty good. <laughs> then uh, we see in the hallway where the aliens and Susan have gone, Ian and Barbara pursue. They'll be joined by the Doctor in a moment. One of the things I thought was funny here... It's very dramatic. The aliens, you know, close the door and are gone with Susan. And then Ian and Barbara just open the door and walk in. So it kind of, <laughs> you know, destroys the dramatic tension. There. Yeah. <laughs> it was a nice try, though. <laughs> so when Ian and Barbara approach these aliens, uh, the one alien turns to the other and uh, he, he just blurts out, they are not carrying any weapons, yet I am frightened of them. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't even bother to stage whisper. He just he just says yep. it, you know, just, just to be sure Ian and Barbara know that he's frightened. After he says that, when they cut back to Ian and Barbara walking towards them, they are in a very menacing <laughs> attitude. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. So I would be scared of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the doctor is... Very displeased with uh, with Susan for taking it on her, on her going on her own initiative to go off with these aliens, uh, mm -hmm. you know, potentially sacrifice herself 
for the crew, as it were. And he uh, starts uh, giving her a hard time about it. Susan says, stop treating me like a child. And the doctor treats her like a child and says, you will do as you're told, Susan. Come here. This is a very, very disappointing point for the show for me and not the first one with Susan. She gives up and walks over to him. I feel like this dialogue is a dialogue between the actress and the producers of the show. You know, as we've talked about all along, she was supposed to be this intriguing, alien, intelligent, genius presence, and they've turned her into this teenage girl who doesn't know anything. Yeah. And she is now caving into the doctor when he treats her like a child. So, you know, it kind of, it intimates how things are going to go with the actress in the show. (laughs) Let me put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think Carol Ann Ford has a good amount of presence. So uh, she's still entertaining to watch in the show, but she, but she isn't the unearthly child that we were promised. Right. I mean, really Barbara has, played that role much more and and very well right Mm -hmm. so now we get to this amazing strategic decision on the point of ian (laughs) yes yeah he uh he goes to the great big light switch on the wall and uh it's it's actually a huge it's it's like a big box with a giant lever it's right out of frankenstein (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly and he shuts off the lights and at this point, the censorites' reaction is less than admirable. <laughs> it, it, it suggests that their society has failed to prepare them for the eventuality that at some point they might actually be without light. Because <laughs> they stagger, they're holding these little hood ornament gun lock melter things, and they drop them as soon as the lights go out. They just... They're utterly flabbergasted by this, and uh, it's uh, it's really just a shameful display on their part. Who could have seen turning out the lights? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor says, uh, you could have been left here in the darkness, you know, after they turn the lights back on, of course. We have power over you, but we don't intend to use it. Yeah, I just find it really funny that, you know, whoever controls the light switch rules the world. <laughs> it's like the uh, one-eyed man in the, you know, country of the blind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they they talk amongst themselves, and uh, the aliens are going to try to negotiate with the head honchos back on the sense sphere. So one of the aliens uses his little telepathy token, the stethoscope type thing. <laughs> About two seconds after he puts it to his forehead, the doctor says, well, (laughs) the alien tells him you must be patient. Um, But uh, the doctor's eager to find some information. Yeah, so they have to wait. And I love this part. The doctor decides to leave and go back to the main room. But he says, if they try anything, turn out the lights again. <laughs> it's like, wow, there's no bigger, you know, talk than we're going to turn out the lights if you do anything. <laughs> now go away or I shall taunt you a second time. Exactly. <laughs> I fart in your general direction. <laughs> At this point, Ian and Barbara are having a little side conversation and he's 
he's asking about, uh, you know, what if, what if we tried using those tokens? He says, do you think if we did it, we could read each other's minds? And all I could think at this point was, if I was Ian's age, uh, I wouldn't even joke about that because the last thing I'd want is Barbara reading my mind. <laughs> I'll just insert, is that still the, not the case at this point? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just say, uh, you know, with, with age comes infirmity. <laughs> but uh, Barbara says, in, uh, in defense of Susan, she says, she's just growing up, Ian. And this made me wonder... If the show, you, you've mentioned that Susan, you know, we know she's the unearthly child. She's from, you know, in the unaired episode, they said she was from the 49th century and so on. You've mentioned that she was uh, originally supposed to be something like a century old, some, something yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's really the case, but we've, as we've seen in this very story, they intimate all these stories that Susan and the doctor went through before they met Ian and Barbara. So mm -hmm. we can only speculate, but we know she's an alien presence who's had all these experiences Right in the unaired pilot and the actual pilot, unearthly child. They talk about how brilliant she is and how she knows way more about science and history than they do. So just ultimately, it makes no sense to treat her as, you know, a teenager. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or she should at least be more of a. Very precocious teenager. Yeah. Which uh, she generally isn't uh, after that first episode. So now, uh, Doctor and Susan have uh, have gone back to the bridge, and they're they're having a, a spat. Uh, the Doctor says, what is all this setting yourself against me? Uh, then he says, uh, the <laughs> one purpose in growing old is to ac accumulate knowledge and wisdom and to help other people. And, uh, you know, all right, that's as good a purpose as any, I guess. Yeah, but, I mean, he's <laughs> telling her, you're not allowed to disagree with me or have an independent thought. I don't think this is good for him. <laughs> Although, I can see his perspective because, well, she is young, at least as far as we know, within the context of it's the story. Even if she's him, brilliant. Least, yeah. <laughs> yeah, even if she's brilliant, she's young and... If, if that's the case, then there is learning to do. And it's certainly, certainly going off with two strange aliens that you've just <laughs> met is not, uh, you know, that's not something you'd want your 15 year old granddaughter doing. I mean, <laughs> and that's not something you would necessarily recommend to anybody who had a 15 year old granddaughter. <laughs> so. Uh, I can see where he's coming right. from. She says, I understand the sensorites. They're timid little people. Then he tells her, you will not make decisions on your own accord. And again, it's like, okay, you know, <laughs> I mean, I understand, but you're telling this person they're not allowed to have any agency whatsoever, you know, you know. Yeah. Then, of course, there's not, ex he doesn't mean she can never decide anything, but uh, <laughs> this is, this is a big decision. I mean, she's, she's saying, I'm going down to these guys' <laughs> planet with them. Uh, see you later. I mean, that's that's a big decision. So, I guess, so you're on the side of the doctor. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not exactly taking side. Well, I'm playing devil's advocate. But, but, <laughs> you know, yeah, hell with it. I am on the side of the doctor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, 
But the censorites are not on your side because they come in and say, why do you make her unhappy? We can read the misery in her mind. <laughs> so he's making her <laughs> miserable. And the doctor says a ludicrous statement. We've never had an argument before. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> You've never had an argument with your teenage granddaughter before. Okay, we can believe that. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, he he may have a selective memory about some things. <laughs> but this is where I get disappointed because I'm on Susan's side in all this. She says, all right, grandfather, I'll do as you say. So she caves in again. <laughs> and then the doctor does get a get a nicer line, though. Uh, when, uh, when the aliens tell him uh, their leader is willing to negotiate uh, the doctor says there's only one treasure we desire from him the alien says what's that and the doctor says freedom <laughs> very very heroic moment there mm -hmm. the next scene is in uh john's bunk and it starts off with john saying to carol who is or at least was his fiance before he was driven insane by the censorites he says to her, you're good. <laughs> uh, and this is something that will become a theme with him, uh, mm -hmm. you know, evaluating the people around him. And he says, I want to have silence in my head. Silence. Uh, the censorites have, have messed him up, and he's become also kind of psychically sensitive. Uh, and... Uh, and he's sensitive, probably. It, I don't know that it comes out explicitly, but he's probably sensitive to the emotion in this conversation that Carol and Maitland are having right next to him. Uh, they're really, really right in his presence. They're, they're talking freely about him because they figure he just doesn't know what the hell they're saying anyhow. But we mentioned Carol was his fiance. They were going to get married. And then he went mad, and she says, Can you imagine what it's like being in love with someone, to look at them, to see them, and know they've been destroyed? And Maitland tells her the censorites will cure him. That's part of the deal they've made. <laughs> um, and Carol says, Oh, it's no use. It's too late. <laughs> and that, to me, seemed like it could be taken a couple ways. <laughs> I mean, the obvious meaning is, it's too late. He's over the bend, past the bend, whatever the expression is. He can't be cured. Um, but the other darker way that you could take it is that now that she has seen him and known that he's been destroyed, as she said, even if he is cured, can she ever love mm. him again, having seen him in this uh, debased state? It's yeah. an er interesting thing yeah. to wonder about. I think that's and we, Yeah, we still have three more episodes after this <laughs> one that I haven't yet seen, so I don't know where that leads, if it leads anywhere. Um, and then having said that, in a little bit of bitter uh, reprise, John again says, you're good. <laughs> mm -hmm. In the control room, Ian says to the censorites, you're asking Barbara and Maitland to stay on the spaceship while we go down to the sense sphere. Yeah, and as the, uh, you know, Doctor Who behind-the-scenes guy, I think it's funny because what they're saying is, 
Jacqueline Hill, who plays Barbara, is going to be on a two-week vacation, so we need her to stay <laughs> on this spaceship for the next two weeks. <laughs> yeah. And Ian uh, is a little doubtful about the whole thing. He says, and I, I enjoy this uh, quite a bit, he says, well, I don't like this splitting up. It always leads to trouble. <laughs> Yeah, it's good to know they're never going to split up again. <laughs> we, yeah, they've only done it in practically every episode so yeah. far. <laughs> and then there's another little grammatical error that I just have to point out because uh, I'm such a annoying person. <laughs> the, doctor, the doctor is uh, talking to the sensor H and he says, Blanket out the minds of the spaceship's crew. Hmm? <laughs> and then he meant blank out, and not blanket out. But I also like the way that he added the little hmm. Yeah, which uh, I think it hasn't been there so much so far, but becomes a big part of his characterization of the doctor. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, good deal. Well, I'm I, I'm sure I'll enjoy that. <laughs> So the sensorites begin telling the story of the first Earthlings to visit the sense sphere. Uh, they visited, then they left, and two took off in the ship they came in, but three were unaccounted for. And the sensorites say, We imagined they hid themselves aboard and then fought the other two for control <laughs> because the spaceship exploded and they figured, well, that's five Earthlings accounted for it. <laughs> they all blew up. Now, me, I think that somewhere in the later three episodes, we may find out more about these three unaccounted for Earthlings. Uh -huh. But that at, my, at this point is my suspicion only. I have no hmm. comment. <laughs> All right, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but I'm thinking that little that little reference may have been kind of like a, like Chekhov's Earthlings. <laughs> you know, they had to mention them so that they can appear later. But we'll see, we'll see. At any rate, since that uh, spaceship exploded, the sensorites have been dying of a disease, and more of them each year. So the natural conclusion they drew is that uh, the disease began with the presence of the Earthlings on their planet. But whether that's accurate or not, we can't say. Mm -hmm. A sensorite gives the uh, doctor a compliment, uh, which is not... Well, it, it entertained me. <laughs> he says, And the first elder says he senses great knowledge in you. The doctor says, Ha-ha, I thought so. <laughs> yeah, fits into the doctor's worldview. <laughs> yeah. And then it's time for everybody to part, and I guess for Barbara to go on vacation. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and it's interesting that these, um, the companions who we noted at the beginning of the first episode of this storyline, uh, have become a little, uh, they've got some camaraderie and some friendly feelings toward one another. Uh, it seems to me they're pretty, pretty touchy feeling when they say their goodbyes. You know, they're patting on the shoulders and they're clasping hands and uh, they're just really, uh, yeah, they're, there's genuine affection starting to manifest between them, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, so that's kind of nice. Mm -hmm. Then we go to the sense sphere. And I, it's never quite, at least not yet, I don't think it's clarified if this room is the first elder's office or just one of the main conference rooms, but it's it's where the first elder is going to be meeting a 
few different people in this episode. For people listening to this anywhere near where we recorded it for the last year, uh, it was, was kind of like, oh, great, because they literally spend the first couple minutes of this debating lockdown policy for a pandemic and whether they should have social distancing and whether they should allow <laughs> these aliens to be anywhere near them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not, we've all been through this. <laughs> <laughs> now, the first is talking with his, with his advisor and his, uh, his city administrator, and he's uh, he's just sort of dispensing wisdom. He seems like a... He seems comes across to me as a fairly knowledgeable guy and fairly uh, concerned about not only the welfare of his people, but about what's the right thing to do with regard to the uh, earthlings. And discussing the earthlings, he says, to them, we may appear to be <laughs> ugly. And uh, yes, you do. <laughs> Sorry to say it, but, uh, but that's okay. You also seem to be Pretty thoughtful guy, so right. you know, I'll let it slide. One of the others who might be the city administrator, who we'll learn more about later, says, why would we bring these people here? You know, there are animals and creatures in the mountains, but we don't invite them to our palace. <laughs> and this <laughs> reminded me of the Planet of the Apes, which actually, uh, actually I think, you know, we might want to think about covering at some point. Um, where the, the apes, you know, were very dismissive of humans and treated them as animals. And this is very mm. similar. Yeah. yeah. And again, same time frame. So who knows? Maybe Planet of the Apes was influenced by this. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, just an interesting note on the technology of the sensorites. Uh, the, the first elder, he asks, he's talking about the, humans and the question of whether or not they're animals and he says do we possess a spaceship that can cross the barriers of the universe <laughs> uh like the tardis or even like maitland and carol's ship uh when the second shakes his head so they're however technologically advanced they may be uh they they are not as far ahead as the earthlings are so it's a Interesting point, because uh, certainly their lock breaker seems to work well. <laughs> but uh, other than that, apparently they're behind in a few areas. Yep. There's a neat little detail in this room that just struck me, because uh, it's it's not a heavily decorated room, but they have one, uh, It's it looks like a sunburst on a pedestal, basically a sphere with a lot of rays coming out of it. And it reminded me kind of like, uh, it reminded me kind of, of a clock in Edward Scissorhands. Hmm. And it turns out that that clock, or at least a clock that looks a lot like it, is called an Elgin Starburst, according to what I can find <laughs> on the internet. So, uh, I, I don't have room for one of them in my house, but, uh, if any listeners are looking for something cool, look up <laughs> Elgin I'll Starburst. I'll leave that one to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So they're talking about uh, the lock mechanism they yanked out of the TARDIS. They say it looks like an ordinary clock, or not clock, an ordinary lock, but in point of fact is an electronic miracle. <laughs> uh, but it's apparently the miraculous part is within the cylinder, mm -hmm. not within the uh, casing around the cylinder. Uh, and the city administrator does his first significant speaking at this point. 
as we'll find out, the city administrator uh, is not a great guy. He's a character. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he can roll his R's like nobody's business. So that's fun, at least. <laughs> he talks to the first for a while, and uh, the first leaves, and the city administrator tells the second, the first advisor, he's aimed the disintegrator at this room. And the disintegrator is a machine that can remotely disintegrate things. <laughs> the reason for aiming it at this room is this is where the humans will be hosted when they arrive. He says, it's my duty to protect the one who rules. One suspicious act and the disintegrator will destroy them. <laughs> and as we'll see, uh, maybe even fewer than one suspicious acts. Yeah, it doesn't seem generate. like he's really willing to wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The second says he'll consider the matter. He's not, he's not saying he's going to support him or not yet. Um, he leaves, and then uh, the administrator gets a little mini monologue of just a few sentences. He says... I shall not wait. We will not be safe until these earth creatures are dead. <laughs> Might be and, true. <laughs> uh, <yep. laughs> My opinion so far of the city administrator could change in following episodes. So far, my opinion is he's okay. He's fine. He's no Tlatoxel. Yeah. But, uh, yep. but he's fine. Yeah, well, and, uh, we'll always have the Aztecs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, the, the, the irony struck me uh, just last night that Kameka may have had to give up the doctor, but I had to give up Platoxel. <laughs> it's a bromance, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the guide is showing uh, the doctor and his companions through the city or through the administrative building, wherever they are. And uh, he points out that they're forbidden to talk to the lower caste, uh, which brings up the whole fact that there is a caste system. <laughs> and there are essentially three castes. There are the elders, there are the warriors, and then there are the censorites. But it's who, okay. There's there's no uh, problem with being in any of the castes, right? <laughs> no disgrace. <laughs> yeah, there's no disgrace in being in any of the castes. It's simply what one is best fitted for. Uh, and yet, time and time again, even in this episode, we'll find privileges that one cast gets that the <laughs> others don't. So there may not be disgrace in being in any, any of the casts, but there are some practical side yep. effects of it. Yep. That's how it works, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so John John is still, still out of it. They brought him here to try and uh, be healed. Uh, the sensorites seemed confident they could do it. And he says, they're near us now, the evil minds. Susan thinks she knows what's going on with them. She explains that his mind is open to psychic wavelengths or, you know, that sort of thing. And he can tell the difference between good and evil people. So that's why John keeps saying, you know, you're good, he's mm -hmm. bad, so mm -hmm. on. Now we go to the city administrator's control room. City administrator's in here with the engineer, and they are scheming. Not merely scheming, but actually implementing a scheme. The engineer inserts a firing key into the console of the machine that turns out to be 
The disintegrator. <laughs> I'm not used to the idea that an administrator has access to a disintegrator, but okay. <laughs> Seems like that might be more of a military function. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, maybe they have to disintegrate like clogs and sewers and stuff like that. You never know. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> but he does say, he did, he did say in that previous uh, meeting in the first elder's office, he said, yeah, it was his duty to protect the first elder. So that's that's part of his portfolio. You know, I I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, once they've inserted the firing key, there's a lot of switch toggling. It almost seems like filler, except they're doing some talking over it. So it's you know it's kind of entertaining or yeah, a little entertainment slash exposition. The engineer's going to aim the beam at the center of each human's chest because they don't know for sure which side of the chest the heart is on. And their uh, own the hearts center are in the center, beam. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So that'll work well enough. Good enough for government work, as they say. <laughs> and uh, the engineer knows where they are at all times. He can track their location through electrothermocouples that trace body <laughs> It isn't clear how he's doing that. There isn't an obvious monitor that he's looking at or mm -hmm. anything like that, but he's, he's super aware of where they are at all times. We go back to the first office. Carol's going to be given a room near John while he's in his convalescence so that she can support him as he needs it. John walks by the first elder, and uh, he looks right into the camera for a moment, like he's breaking the fourth <laughs> wall almost. But but he's not. But it looks like it for just a minute. And he says, he's a good man, not like... Uh, and he cuts that off, thought off, and he says, he's good. And that's it for his analysis mm -hmm. of the first elder. Back at the administrator's control room with the uh, with the disintegrator, the second, who is the first advisor, he enters. He's he is considered the matter as he promised to, and he orders that the disintegrator be dismantled. And not only must the machine be dismantled, but he takes the firing key to make doubly sure. Mm -hmm. um, and then, as a Parting shot, he expresses some doubts about the administrator's good judgment. <laughs> good to know somebody's thinking things through here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now at the uh, at the first first elder's office, he is receiving our heroes as his guests. He explains what happened to John. It wasn't an attack on John. It was that John's mind opened up. They saw his imagination of a fleet of ships bringing the metal molybdenum back to Earth. And John's mind opened up because he had such strong emotion at these visions of wealth. The elder says, it happened only, I assure you, because of his excitement. His mind had no reserve, no defense. He heard the full power of our voices in his brain. So there, I guess, if, assuming that he's telling the truth, they're kind of off the hook for for John's freak out because uh he he it wasn't something that the sensor rights could really control. Mm -hmm. They just his mind he got he got so excited that they were just suddenly there in his head. It wasn't like they tried to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just one of those things that happens, I guess. So after he's explained that, the waiter comes in with some trays of goodies <laughs> for the guests. 
And he scolds the waiter because the cups of water that he has brought are water for the lower castes. Not quite Um, sure how he would be able to identify that by sight. (laughs) Well, I I think maybe it's the containers. These come in sort of little bowls, and maybe the higher caste water comes in. I I think it might come in a pitcher Mm -hmm. or something like that. But somehow he recognizes that the guests have been given the water of the lower castes. <laughs> and it turns out that that water was brought on the city administrator's instructions, no doubt as part of preparing the security for this, uh, for this conference, <laughs> which is one of a, a few different uh, slightly off-kilter things that happen in the next few minutes here. The first tells the waiter, uh, this isn't good enough, uh, they have to be given our special crystal water. And the first elder says, In the yellow mountains which surround the city, I discovered a pure spring. Now, I was always told, don't drink the yellow spring. <laughs> but that's where they found it. Don't drink the yellow delight. snow is always good advice. <laughs> <laughs> the lower cast water, on the other hand, the stuff that they almost were offered, mm. comes from an aqueduct beneath the city, and they're all very proud of it. But it's not good enough for these guests. So, however, Ian is really thirsty. So he's until the until the good stuff gets here. He uh, he asks uh, asks the first elder if he'll be offended if he just takes a drink of the off-brand water. And the first elder says, "No, that's fine as long as you try the crystal water when it gets here. That's really good." Yeah, he, in fact, he says, "None of the elders drink anything else than the crystal water." And I'm, I'm thinking the city administrator probably counts as an elder, uh, <laughs> which is interesting because he's the one who said to bring the lesser water up. But anyway, uh, we go back to the control room for just a brief moment, and the engineer, though he and the administrator are both frustrated that the, the second elder has shut down their operation, the engineer, nonetheless, is in total agreement with the administrator, and he swears loyalty to him. He's he's just ready to, you know, put me in, coach. And, uh, so we're we're seeing the the building of a dark alliance mm-hmm. of some sort here. Uh, then we go back to the first office, and the first is explaining that the first elder gets crossed sashes. Looks almost like bandoliers crossed on his chest, uh, but they're black fabric instead of bullets. The second elder, who's his visor, uh, gets a single diagonal sash. And then the other elders get, quote, distinctive markings. So, And I'll be a little bit racist here. <laughs> you can't mm-hmm. tell the difference between these people. And as we'll find out later, they can't tell the difference between each other. So the no. only way you can tell are these markings, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah. It's they are hard to tell apart. I mean, one of them have a might have a slightly differently styled beard than another <laughs> one, but uh, they're all pretty similar looking. So the the companions ask about the other casts, how they uh, are distinguished from one another. The first elder says they are contented with their similarity. <laughs> and the thought that occurs to me is uh, right up until they set up the guillotine. Yep, yep. At this point, 
Ian says, would you mind telling us something about the dis... And then he coughs a couple times. I beg your pardon, the disease. I remember from the first time I watched this, I almost thought maybe the actor was coughing. Like, he did a really good Mm. job, and I didn't take this as a sign of anything. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I... uh... I, uh, I think I was wise to her pretty early on, but uh, but I can see how, yeah, you might not notice it. But, but then I, I had been suspicious. I was really, I was really suspicious from the moment the waiter came in and the first elder <laughs> said, wait, what are you doing? Right. Uh, that, that just sort of set it all off for me. At any rate, uh, he's asking about the disease. The doctor asks, does it affect the elders? And the first elder says, no. The doctor says, I wonder why not. <laughs> and uh, at this point, I was pretty sure I've cracked the puzzle. <laughs> and and we don't find out for certain by the end of the episode yep. what the answer is. But I'm I'm just going to say I'm 95% sure <laughs> that I think I know what's going on here. There's one person in this scene who's drank the normal water. <laughs> <laughs> you can yep. make of that what you will. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he he wouldn't wait for the fancy stuff. Uh, and uh, and while the doctor's questions are going on, Ian is coughing quietly in the background. Uh, then Ian says his throat's burning and he wants water. Well, you just had some water, Ian. What's wrong with you? But uh, before he can get any more water, he collapses. And the first elder says, there is no hope. Your friend is done. <laughs> and that's the end of the episode. Dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> the About Time book series claims this episode is perhaps the most important in the history of the show because of one particular moment that changes everything. It's a bold claim, and I'm not going to say what it is they're talking about yet because I want to see if Guy can spot it. <laughs> I have. We'll see. <laughs> okay. Um,. So, picking up with the story, we last left with Ian had drank some water and passed out on the floor. And while he's passed out, the doctor is debating uh, what this disease is and how it transmits. And it takes him a while, but he eventually gets to what's pretty obvious. It was the aqueduct <laughs> water, because they have two kinds of water. They have crystal water that the, that the hoi polloi get, <laughs> and they have aqueduct water that, that everyone else gets. Yeah. And the people who only drink the crystal water never get sick. Yeah, and I, it was it was obvious enough that I was able to put it together. So that tells you something <laughs> there. Now, what cracks me up is, the doctor has an idea for treating Ian, and he says, "Bring me some sodium chloride," <laughs> which is salt. He yeah. really didn't need to say sodium chloride. I think he was trying to sound smart. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, I think a really interesting thing about. The next couple episodes is we'll, for the first time, we see the doctor really act like a scientist. And I think this doctor, as it develops, is much more of a scientist than, than future doctors. Um, but uh, he definitely is, is playing the full science role in this one. Well, you remember he was very pleased about getting that nasty old coffee mug uh, in the... That's true. Yep. The flask. In the, <laughs> uh, that was... Um, it was in the brain slug episode... Yep. <laughs> he does declare no one must drink anything but the crystal water. So <laughs> I guess everybody gets Perrier. Uh, what's that? Uh, Perrier. 
<laughs> Perrier, yes. Yeah. Uh, I guess everybody gets Perrier now. <laughs> Susan wants to know how long Ian has to live, and the first elder says three days, max. And the doctor's actually encouraged. That means we have time. <laughs> Plenty of time for the doctor. Yep. But he wants the key to the TARDIS so he can get his scientific supplies. And the first elder needs to think about it and consult with the second elder before he can make a decision. Meanwhile, the doctor mixes the salt and some water and calls it an old-fashioned remedy. I wanted to say here, there's actually probably some scientific basis to this. Because salt and water is basically a poor man's Gatorade. It's uh, Salt is electrolytes, which... uh, in idiocracy, uh, it was, they were advertised as what's, what plants crave, and that was the whole <laughs> sort of uh, MacGuffin of the whole story there. And uh, it's not what plants crave, but the, in a variety of situations for people, they can be very helpful. Uh, if you get a Charlie horse during the night, a glass of salt water is good for that. If you're in a low-carb diet and you get the so-called keto flu, it helps with that. <laughs> and, of course... With hangovers, they can be very beneficial. So, good to know. Yeah, okay. I'll keep it in mind. So, they uh, serve the salt and water to Ian, who's been out on the floor all this time. And I'm always curious about what this feels like for actors when they're in a situation where they have to be, you know, sleeping or unconscious or standing in the corner or whatever for several minutes. And then they have to suddenly come in and, and, you know, be a part of the story and hit their mark. I I think it has to be a challenge. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. And especially if it's a situation where there's kind of a close up and, uh, you have to try and to look like you're not breathing. That would be real hard for me. I think. (laughs) Yeah. Rarely works. (laughs) (laughs) So the first elder and second elder are talking and the first is, you know, kind of a kindly guy and generally predisposed towards trusting the doctor and company. The second points out that Ian may be pretending to be sick to trick them to letting the doctor back into the TARDIS. And he says, who knows what power he has in the ship. He might go away and fetch an army of human beings and a fleet of spaceships. And honestly, you know, he has some points. I mean, if they were trying to trick them, like they went through this kind of process of tricking the Daleks. So if they were trying to trick them, this is certainly a way they might do it. No, sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's prudent. It's good thinking. <laughs> now we're in the Sensorite laboratory, and a Sensorite scientist, and you can tell the scientist because they have a, a flask logo on their chest, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, and I... Uh... I I noticed that the the flask has some kind of tube coming out of it, and it looks it it zigzags this way and that. It it looks like the caduceus, the emblem of the medical profession, with mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. snakes twisting around it. So there's a neat little allegorical thing there, maybe. <laughs> right, and we have a sensorite scientist here with John, the guy who was kind of the zombie previously. And John has this device on his head, which to me looks like a hair curler. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. And apparently that's uh, supposed to be monitoring him or helping cure him. The city administrator arrives, and he's upset that this creature, John, is here and, and wants to know why they haven't just killed him. And while he's saying this, the second elder shows up and says, once again, you question the voice of authority. And it's interesting, this conversation, because the second elder was just the one being sort of paranoid talking to the first. But then when he's talking to the administrator, the second is being the 
kind of more mature, you know, moderate one. And the city administrator wants everybody killed all the time. Oh yeah. So he's, he's actually, I think he's taking the, I think he's taking the right course. You know, he's, he's kind of balanced. Um, although he does say, and this, this may provoke some consequences down the line. He says, one more insolent word from you, and I shall ask that your collar of office be taken from you. Yeah, and the city administrator takes that collar very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now the administrator just decides to turn to petty insults. He says, these absurd names they all have. None of them wear any signs of authority or badges of position. <laughs> Obviously an inferior species. Oh, yeah. He says the humans have a brilliant and evil scheme to attack their water supply. And when he says this, John looks at them and he's totally still out of it. And he just says, evil, evil. And he's looking at the administrator. And the administrator decides this is an admission of his guilt. See, mm -hmm. they are evil. He admits it. <laughs> <laughs> so the second takes this seriously and runs off to warn the first of this impending danger. And once he leaves, John says, no, the evil is here. <laughs> and the city administrator has no problem with that. He says, your mind is closed by the machine. Your voice is not believed. I am the enemy of all earth creatures. <laughs> so I guess it's good for us viewers to have a clarity on his role. Yeah. John then wants to warn the people of the admin's evil, but he passes out. <laughs> yeah. And Carol shows up in the lab to check on him. And she walks up behind the administrator and she misidentifies him as a scientist. And this is a great offense. He says, you can <laughs> see my collar of office. <laughs> and Carol says, I'm sorry, but when your backs are turned, it's hard to see. And then she says something that's going to become very important. She says, what would we do if you changed your badges and sashes? We wouldn't be able to tell you apart. <laughs> First of all, I kind of feel like. Kind of being racist there, Carol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, the censor rights. They all look alike to me, except mm -hmm. they, in this case, they really do. <laughs> yeah, they look alike to each other because this gives the admin an idea because he's never realized that censor rights all look alike. <laughs> yeah. So we uh, we will see what that comes to. Oh, yeah. We switch to the first elder's chambers. The doctor and Susan are yelling at the first elder about getting access to the TARDIS to save Ian. And he's holding his head because of how loud they're being. And then the first elder and the second elder commune telepathically. And the second elder warns him about this alleged plot. And the first elder informs the doctor he's not allowed to go to the ship. The doctor says something really interesting here. And there was a note of this in a previous episode. He says, don't set yourself against me. And again, until this story, we've never seen the doctor present himself as a threat to others. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, this will be an interesting, again, thread of the Doctor throughout the series. Because on the one hand, he's always wanted to help people. But on the other hand, he is a don't mess with me or you don't know what will happen kind of guy. And this is mm -hmm. the first time we see that. Yeah, and the delivery of this particular line was, uh, you know, it was kind of understated. And uh, I thought it went, uh, it was pretty, pretty good, I thought. Yeah. So the first elder tells the Doctor, look, you can use our lab. And, of course, the doctor feels this will be inferior to his own, and he yells, you fools, <laughs> and he does it so loudly that it really hurts the first. <laughs> and uh, I, I got a kick out of this because he really hits a high note. I My voice doesn't even go as high, but it's something, it's <laughs> like 
you fools. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and this is where, you know, you had talked about how that one book said that this is the most important episode of Doctor Who. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm going to stake my claim here. I'm going to say, this is going to be the doctor's future catchphrase, and that's why this is the most important episode. <laughs> okay, well, uh, our listeners should make it to the end of this podcast episode to find out if Guy is correct or not. <laughs> Maybe we should set up a 1-800 line and people can call in and <laughs> they can vote on it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Susan has calmed down a bit, and she promises the first that they won't talk loudly in the future. <laughs> Not sure they can hold to that. Yeah. Doctor now tells Susan to take care of Ian. He's got to go do some things in the lab. And I thought this was kind of funny because he says, if his breathing gets unstable, get some artificial respiration for him. (laughs) Well, at this time when this show is done, I believe that would basically mean an iron lung. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm thinking, where is Susan going to get an iron lung? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they could always just get a pair of bellows, you know, just stick it in his (laughs) mouth and squeeze them. Well, I, I imagine that was uh, an older solution. So It may have possible. been. I don't know. <laughs> don't get your medical advice from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so now we switch to the city administrator and a minion. Because this guy has no sash and no collar, we literally have no idea who he is. <laughs> and they are debating how to destroy the humans. The second elder now shows up, and he wants the city administrator to see to it that the doctor gets everything he needs. And then the elder leaves. And the administrator, a a, a line I like, the administrator says to his minion, you are witness. These creatures are defeating us with smiles and gentle words. (laughs) Uh, I kind of, you know, it's interesting because I think that um, he he believes what he's saying, right? And he's watching Mm -hmm. these people waltz in. Uh, theoretically trying to poison the water supply and just getting everything they want by being nice. You know. Yeah, in, in a way, he's he's kind of similar to Plutoxel, who, you know, you could argue that he was doing what he did for his own, the, for the benefit of his society as he saw it. Right, uh, and, and both of them share the trait that whatever they do somehow gets them more powerful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a happy little side effect there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the admin tells his minion he wants him to bring the second elder back to him and he blows the minion's mind by pointing out that from a distance you can only tell who a sensorite is by their sash (laughs) sensorites are really learning some things about themselves yeah yeah (laughs) yeah we switch to the laboratory an interesting thing here there are a couple of sensorite scientists the doctor is directing them explaining what he needs done and how they should do it tells them that he believes there's an atropine poison in the aqueduct water. And they have this discussion about testing the water. They say, look, we've tested the water. He's skeptical because there's a disease. It appears to be transmitted by the water. So how much testing could they have done? Well, he says, how many districts are there? And they say there are 10 districts. But we only needed to test the water in one location because all the water comes from a main central source. And he's not happy about this and insists that they need to test samples from every district. Yeah. And he also gives them some detailed instructions. And this is kind of interesting because it's all valid. You know, he wants them to label all the samples so they know where they came from. You know, he wants a very rigid uh, protocol here mm-hmm. so they can figure out what's going on. Yeah. 
And this, uh, I have to believe the author took this directly from the story that is told in a book called The Ghost Map, which is about an 1854 story about a doctor and a reverend. They were dealing with a cholera outbreak. And it was not totally clear how it transmitted. They weren't sure what was going on. And it was really hard to figure out why the people who were getting it were the ones who were getting it. And they ended up creating this map of the people who got sick and where they lived and where they traveled during their day. And eventually they realized there was a single water pump in the city, which was distributing the cholera. Yeah. And, and I thought exactly the same thing because I actually read that book a few years ago and that's how cholera works is it, it's excreted. And if the cesspool is close enough to a groundwater source, it'll seep into it and poison the whole thing. And, self-perpetuating and uh so yeah that was a neat little book i'd I'd recommend it it's been a while since i read it but uh it also makes me wonder how did none of them notice something this obvious that uh, (laughs) this particular district is has the disease in it no others do for all the technology the sensorites have they don't seem to be very good scientists at least until the doctor comes along and teaches them how to do it <laughs> yeah and I, I have some thoughts on that that uh, we may revisit at the end of the show <laughs> if I'm there's sure time we will. <laughs> all right. um and this is great cuz now we go into a science montage where the doctor is looking at vials <laughs> and the and the sensorites are marking down, you know, District 1, negative, District 2, negative, et cetera. And what I love about this, and, and if you know this and you, and you watch carefully, you can see what they're doing, is this is all done live. So they would, you know, one, uh, and they're supposed to be time dissolved. So you'd have a shot of the doctor looking at a vial and then a shot of a sensorite. And in the meantime, the, you know, William Hartnell would have to be running around to get into sh- uh, position for the next shot. Uh, yeah. And they, you know, they do a pretty good job given that. <laughs> yeah, and you you had mentioned in the past how they filmed this show that it was effectively live, even though it wasn't broadcast live, and it didn't occur to me that all this was being done in in real time. So that's uh, that's slick. <laughs> yeah, I did find it funny that the paper the sensorite has to track which districts are. <laughs> Uh, or negative or not is literally just a huge list of district number one, <laughs> district number two, district <laughs> yeah. number three, and then he writes next to it negative. <laughs> it just it was just kind of funny because it seemed they were making kind of a big deal out of this this paper. <laughs> That's probably one of those cases where you know showing on the twelve inch screen you want it to be somewhat legible. People right, know what's right. going so on. So they were using about a hundred point font. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So after much tension in this science montage, one of the districts tests positive. And the doctor is very excited that his protocol has revealed this, and he wants you to know it's his discovery. (laughs) And he says a cure should be available soon. Meanwhile, the second elder has been lured to a meeting with the city administrator. And when he walks in, a couple of minions grab him and hold him captive. And the administrator lets him know right off, your family group is also within my power. We yeah. also call that your family. <laughs> a funny thing, you know, classic thing about science fiction, right, it, it, it is there's this debate about how science fiction authors should do things. So if you're on another planet, they'll say a rabbit-like creature, or do you just say it's a rabbit? <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you give it a funky alien name, or do you just say it's a rabbit? So here, <laughs> it can't be just his family. It's got to be his family group. <laughs> yeah. 
administrator tells him, I do not believe there's an antidote. The young man, Ian, pretends to be ill. And the doctor's going to kill them all with the poison he's made once he puts it in their water. <laughs> kind of like adding fluoride to the water, I guess. <laughs> and now the shocking thing, the administrator takes off the second elder's sash and removes his own collar and engages in identity theft. <laughs> Never before done in the history of this civilization. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're not the sharpest pencils in the drawer, it's starting to seem to me. So it mm -hmm. could be a very well be the first time anybody thought of it. Yeah, and, and you know, we talked earlier about the evolution of how a viewer is going to feel about the aliens, because in the, the first couple of episodes, these are these very fearsome, mind-controlling, you know, uh, in charge of everything, aliens. <laughs> yeah. The more, the more time you spend with them, it's like eh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they sort of they sort of evolve into paper tigers as it goes on. <laughs> uh, the doctor has developed the antidote, and he wants it to be mass produced. So he hands it to someone to run off and mass produce it, and he speculates about why the disease shows up in individual districts at different times if they all have the same water supply. But somebody says, you know, why does it matter if we have a cure? And the doctor says, well, that's a cure, all right, but why cure something if we can stamp it out? The doctor then talks to Carol and John, who are also in the laboratory. John is trying to tell them what's happening, but he's just too out of it, and he, he just can't get the words out in a way that anyone can understand. And Carol says, it's as if he's in a dream world surrounded by enemies. The doctor thinks he might be more lucid than he seems and tells Carol she should take notes of anything he says. Uh, there's a line that John has here, and he's still, of course, all dazed and out of it, and he says, listen to John. And uh, the way he delivers it, it's, uh, I don't know if it's good or bad acting because you're better at <laughs> detecting that sort of thing than I am, but uh, but it's fun acting at least. And uh, And I thought it seemed like there was some genuine emotion there. Uh, yeah, so it's a yeah. neat little line. He does have a tough job here, having to spend most of the story just totally out of it and, and presenting himself that way. And, yeah. you know, yeah, I think he does a fine job. So the doctor is off to go on an expedition with a scientist, and he's confident that he's going to solve everyone's problems. <laughs> so there's a scientist who is bringing the antidote to Ian so he can be cured. And the city administrator, pretending to be the second elder, intercepts him and takes the antidote and says, I will deliver it to Ian. As soon as the dude is left, the administrator smashes the antidote on the floor, and he says, Ian's going to live even without it, and that's going to expose the lie. This will prove it one way or the other. I thought it was funny, if you remember, especially the uh, Monty Python, I think it was Life of Brian, where they have someone they think is a witch and, you know, come up with the idea <laughs> that, that they're going to put her under the water, and if she drowns, she's not a witch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And one of my favorite lines from that movie, which is very easy to miss, and I, I did miss, I think, the first few times I saw it, uh, was after they decide that she's a witch. See, she very quietly says, it's a fair cop. <laughs> All right, you got me dead to rights. <laughs> Susan is with Ian taking care of him. The antidote hasn't arrived for some reason. Susan decides they can't wait any longer, so she's going to leave and find out what's up with the antidote. And the doctor and the scientist are now visiting the aqueduct, and it's dark, and the scientist tells him, we have lights down here, but they keep failing for some reason. Mm -hmm. 
And you can tell the doctor immediately gets a little suspicious about this. Yeah. And he says, that must make it difficult for you guys to come down here. And the scientist says, yes. And he begs the doctor not to go further. He says, you won't be able to see. There are monsters in there. And how do they know there are monsters? Because they've heard terrifying noises. And the doctor, again, is putting some of this together. Oh, it's being kept dark down here and there are loud noises. Isn't it interesting that those are both of the things that the sensorites are sensitive to? So he sends the scientist back to the lab. He's going to continue on his own. Back to Susan and Ian. And she happened to find some antidote. Not clear where. I guess there was a little bit extra left around somewhere. <laughs> and she's injected Ian with the antidote. That scientist who's with the doctor comes in and lets the first elder know that the doctor is in the caverns. Ian is already recovering. It's a very fast antidote. And Susan and Ian want someone to go and save the doctor in the caverns. And the first elder says their expeditions into there usually don't return. And those that do speak of terrible things. So Susan mm -hmm. and Ian decide to go themselves, even though Ian is just recovering from this <laughs> days long <laughs> illness. And seeing how determined they are to help their friend, the first elder says to himself, these people have fine qualities. The second elder and I have misjudged them and I will tell him so. Hmm. I'm sure that's all that will be needed. Yep. <laughs> and so he uh, uses his stethoscope to communicate to the second elder who is being held captive. Second elder can hear him, but without being able to use his own stethoscope, he can't talk back. The city administrator won't give it to him, but he wants to know what message the first elder is sending. And he threatens the safety of the first elder if the second elder doesn't tell him. So the second elder caves, tells him everything, and the city administrator is thrilled. The doctor is going to die in the caverns, and he foresees victory for all my plans. <laughs> Susan and Ian are now in the caverns. Uh, the scientist who brought them down there gives them a flashlight. This gets back to our earlier thing about whether you call a rabbit a rabbit. We can't call it a flashlight, <laughs> so we have to call it a radioelectric light. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it makes you wonder why, uh, why they can't use the lights, but I have a theory about that that maybe I'll get to <laughs> later. But. Right. And now we switch to the doctor who's alone. He's exploring. It's very dark. He has this little pen light, uh, and he's using a magnifying glass and he's looking at the little plants around the area of the water and he finds something. Is it? Yes, I thought so. Atropa belladonna, deadly nightshade. And then we hear the sound of a large monster and it's the end of the episode. <laughs> Mm -hmm. All right, for episode five, uh, before we begin, I'd like to briefly mention, uh, for taking my notes on this episode, I found a good website called Chrissy's Transcript site. It's uh, chakotea.net. It was really helpful to me uh, just to have all that, all of that typed out rather than having to do it myself as I was going through making my remarks. So uh, <laughs> it's worth checking out. Okay, so we're back uh, where the last episode ended, uh, in the aqueduct with the doctor, and he has discovered the belladonna plant, deadly nightshade. Uh, that is a real plant that grows on Earth, and uh, later on we may speculate about how it got to this planet. Um, and it's very poisonous. Uh, in Wikipedia, there was a mention that... Uh, uh, one woman ate only six berries from it and got some real bad, serious uh, effects. So it's, uh, it's pretty heavy. 
how much you might take uh, to poison the whole water supply. Uh, I didn't see anything about that on Wikipedia, so we don't know. But at this point, as uh, the doctor finds the plant, uh, the titles come up as he's looking off apprehensively because there's also a growling monster in here with him. And uh, the growl is ominous, but that said, it also <laughs> sounds like somebody with a bad snoring problem. Uh, and for a moment, I thought this might actually be the big reveal that we'd get sooner or later is that uh, you know, we've, we've already seen the, the three, there were three humans who were supposedly killed in a spaceship explosion, but that seemed a little too convenient to be the real story. So I thought maybe those three humans are down here snoring, <laughs> but very shortly we'll find out that something does tear them up pretty good because Susan and Ian arrive in the aqueduct searching for the doctor just in time to hear him yell, keep away. They run to the sound and they find him lying there unconscious. And the doctor's nice little jacket is in shreds. Not so shredded that it actually drew any blood, but it's in shreds. And then Susan sees an ordinary light bulb socket. And uh, this is another prop from the BBC's extensive old basement collection. <laughs> I have a couple of them in my own basement. And uh, Susan and Ian realize this is part of a lighting system, but there's no time to pursue that line of inquiry any further because that monster is still around somewhere. And they will never bring it up again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So back to the laboratory, and Carol is in there uh, pleading with the scientists to help the doctor and Susan and Ian. She knows they're all off in the aqueduct, and she's, uh, she's concerned. The first elder... Uh, brings up an interesting point about, I hate he just emphasizes what we already know. Uh, he says, you have no conception of what extreme sound does to us. It stuns the brain and paralyzes the nerves. Uh, and the scientist says, in the darkness, we're helpless anyway. Our warriors will be more of a hindrance than a help. <laughs> so between the two of them, they're making some excuses as to why they can't help the gang. Mm-hmm. The good news is John's on the last treatment of his cure. Before you know it, he'll be up and about. <laughs> and his hair will be curled. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the aqueduct, Susan's observing the doctor's ruined coat. And Ian says, these look like claw marks. Strange they didn't reach your skin. And uh, as Ron mentioned, I don't think there's ever any explanation offered for this whatsoever. No, the, and... <laughs> You know the phrase, hang a lantern on it? Yeah, yeah. That's what they're doing here, because it makes no sense. His coat has been torn. Mm -hmm. His shirt is fine. His body is fine. There is no way <laughs> this coat would have been torn to shreds with nothing else happening. So instead of trying to explain it, they just say it. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's strange. And <laughs> it is a lazy writing approach to solving a problem. You know, yeah. Hang a lantern on it. <laughs> yeah. The doctor says, uh, something hit me under the heart, and it was most unpleasant. And I don't think we ever really find out what that was either. Um, well, and that's not consistent. I mean, something clawed his back. <laughs> <laughs> How did it hit him in the heart? I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Susan reveals that the first antidote shipment never arrived, and she had to go to the lab to fetch some. And that... 
uh, gets the doctor wondering. And he, he says, between the water and the monsters and the sensorites, there's, there's someone among the sensorites that bears us ill will. That's two separate enemies. And Ian sensibly points out, don't you mean it's three? But the doctor explains the water and the monsters are connected. But, you know, he's not going to reveal how. He but just, he says, I've already solved that. He just kind of <laughs> dismisses it. <laughs> yeah. And as they leave the aqueduct, the engineer emerges from behind the pipes and sinisterly watches them go. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how he dealt with the darkness and noise while he was down there. But they told yeah. Yeah, he might have had one of those radio electric lights or whatever <laughs> there. I don't know. <laughs> In the laboratory, uh, John is getting what should be his last treatment, and he's uh, muttering about treachery and a plot. The scientist thinks he's just uh, he's just having fever dreams or some such because the scientist says our society is based upon trust. Treason or secret plotting is impossible. We have the perfect society. All are contented. Terrell's skeptical, and she points out, some people always want more than others. And the scientist replies, that is a human value, surely. <laughs> Which is uh, not the most scientific attitude, I would say, but uh, <laughs> there you have it. And I think... This, this suggests that there's some line of propaganda about the sensorites by the sensorites, maybe by the first elder, maybe by the city administrator, maybe a little of both. There's some line of propaganda about who we are as a people that the scientist buys into. And it, there are various things, the caste system, the general ineffectuality of the sensorites, uh, you know, the apparent belief in the propaganda, uh, things like that. It may be overthinking it or reading too much into it, but, but there seems to be hints in the storyline that benevolent authoritarianism is still authoritarianism. <laughs> That's could one be, perspective. Could be. <laughs> yeah. Then the Carol and the scientist are discussing the mental veil that's lifted by fear. And that's, of course, what caused John to get in his current sad state. And now they're trying to fix it up now. Right. So, so I think the idea here is that being fearful exposes your mind, which is something the doctor had warned about earlier with Ian, right, in the very right. first episode. So once his mind is exposed, then telepaths can get at it. Right. And this prompts a couple interesting lines. Carol says, it's rather like an eyelid, isn't it? These shutters over my eyes, she adds, when, when she realizes the scientist doesn't know what eyelids are. <laughs> and the scientist replies, yes, to see all the time is not a good thing. This is spotlighting that the sensorite masks aren't rigged to blink. Uh, you know, we always see them with open eyes. It also suggests that the sensorites may live in constant existential despair, which uh, <laughs> I actually had a very uh, intricate discussion uh, planned for here. But I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe bring that up a little later on. I think it'd disrupt the show here. <laughs> okay. So we head back to the city administrator's control room. The engineer who was spying in the aqueducts. Uh, relates what he overheard, that the humans are getting wise to their scheme. And the administrator has the second elder in there, and uh, 
keeping him prisoner, and he calls him a whimpering betrayer of our people. Mm -hmm. uh, he says, I should imprison you in some room wherein no light can shine and fill that room with noise. <laughs> and he slaps the table pretty weakly to make his point, but it's strong enough to make the second elder hold his hands up to his ears in pain. <laughs> and then uh, the second elder bravely says, do it then. <laughs> but then the administrator reminds him about his family group <laughs> who <laughs> is in danger. So he makes the second elder summon the, the senior warrior to the palace courtyard to return the firing key to the disintegrator. Yeah, I guess uh, for anyone who doesn't recall, way back in, I think, the second episode, the uh, city administrator was trying to kill all the humans with the disintegrator, but the but the key for the disintegrator got taken away from him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the second, after he confiscated it, he turned around and gave it to the warrior for safekeeping. Yeah. Which makes sense. I mean, that uh, does sure. seem like who should maybe be keeping it. Yeah. <laughs> the second elder, uh, being all imprisoned here, asks the engineer, after the administrator's departed, he asks, why do you listen to him? Why do you follow him? The engineer says, he will not betray our people nor surrender our planet. But the second elder says, he will bring us down, all of us. <laughs> He's not, he doesn't have a rosy outlook about this situation. Yep. And in the courtyard, the doctor and Susan and Ian are finally getting back to the palace. Uh, apparently, the engineer passed them along the way. They're just in time to see the fake second elder, which is to say the city administrator, in the midst of getting the handoff of the firing key from the, from the senior warrior. <laughs> Doctor says, I say, yo, sir, sir, I'd like a word with you. The sensorite scuttles off. The doctor chases him. <laughs> Susan and Ian talk about how Barbara's doing. Ian suggests that they should ask the first elder if Barbara can come down and join us now that she's back from vacation. He, do <laughs> he doesn't mention that part, but that's what it is. The doctor comes back and he says, most extraordinary. He ran away from me. And uh, Susan has a funny line here cute line i guess uh, she laughs and she says that must have looked funny flip flap flip flap and she <laughs> she does a passable impression of a of a sensor right with her hands held out in front of her and yeah but i'm, I'm gonna call racism again our, <laughs> our our human characters seem to be okay with uh with these stereotypical portrayals <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was unkind but then again it uh it must have looked funny <laughs> so, yeah, can't uh, can't have opinions about truth. <laughs> so back in the administrator's control room, the engineer had untied the second elder previously, and he didn't bother to tie him up again. When the administrator tells him to tie him up again, the second elder makes his move. He shoves away the engineer, then he grabs the key from the administrator and shoves the administrator. So shoving is the way to fight a sensorite <laughs> if you ever get into that situation. Before the administrator can rebound, the second elder holds the firing key over the edge of the disintegrator console and gives it a good bend. Uh, I thought that was good thinking, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it worked. As soon as he's done that, the engineer makes a fist and gives him kind of a karate chop with it. 
And simultaneously, the city administrator and engineer have revelations. The administrator says he has broken it, and the engineer says the second elder is dead. Uh, <laughs> so it's a big day for them. Yep. Also, I, I you know, the, I love this t- television show trope, you know, just because they have to save time, right? You need to knock somebody out or kill them. It's one hit. And <laughs> the reality <laughs> is, for anybody who is, you know, uh, uh, plotting to kill somebody, it's actually really hard, and it takes a lot of time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not, not yeah. that I know from experience. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, it it it, it, uh, it often doesn't go. Even even hunters or fishermen can tell you that. You know, yeah. The administrator notes that the only other firing key is uh, in the possession of the first elder, and if somebody bent that one, then they just wouldn't be able to use the disintegrator. I guess <laughs> the engineer is panicky. He's afraid that they're just their goose is cooked. They're going to have to leave the city and go off and hide in the mountains. Yeah, he he's willing to just give it all up. You know, really easily. <laughs> yeah. The administrator uh, is uh, is less apprehensive. He uh, He's pretty sure that, as he says, the death of the second elder can help us, not condemn us. Then he further goes on to say that he has a plan that involves the doctor. Hmm. So we go to the conference room. The, uh, the first elder, the doctor, Susan and Ian are all in there uh, discussing this situation with the the second elder the first elder trusts him a lot even though uh even though the human guests are uh, are concerned about him uh and we know that his trust is justified um and unless the second elder's family is threatened which it is uh but in general he's a reliable guy a servant comes in with a big black cloak to replace the <laughs> doctor's shredded uh, shredded coat uh, Susan says it's very smart. Amusing thing here, uh, wearing a cloak does become sort of one of this doctor's traits. <laughs> oh, okay, very good. Yeah, it does look pretty good on him, actually. And the doctor, in fact, mentions Bo Brummel always said I look better in a cloak. And uh, for anyone who doesn't recognize that name, he was a dandy of the Regency period, uh, and he was known for his fashion sense. You may know at least one cultural reference to him. Uh, there's a line from Billy Joel's, it's still rock and roll to me. He says, you could really be a Bo Brummel baby. So if you recognize that beautifully <laughs> sung uh, line there, that, then you've already heard of Bo Brummel. How about a pair of pink sidewinders and a bright orange pair of pants? Well, you could really be a boy promo, baby, if you just give it half a chance. Well, I was wondering about the reference, so I'm glad you looked it up. I figured you might. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The administrator enters, uh, and this time he's not in disguise. He's wearing his usual collar, which... uh, is it would be an easy thing to miss for me because it it looks it it doesn't look much different than a normal t-shirt collar. Um mm-hmm. it's a little thicker, but you know, it's it's not exactly something that stands out to a human eye. Um although John does notice it at one point which we'll find out later. Anyway, the administrator says there's a story that has been put before him uh that that the rest of them should hear. And the warrior and the engineer both come in to back up his claims. The engineer says, Sir, the second elder is dead. He was killed in the courtyard. I saw the man who killed him, 
It was the man called the doctor, which Hell. is a total <laughs> lie, but uh, there you go. The warrior says that he had met the second elder in the courtyard, uh, according to his orders, and he handed over the firing key. Uh, and then he saw the doctor go after the second elder, and uh, Which and the is very warrior clever because that is what happened, right? Yeah, and I, I, the warrior here isn't actually lying. He he thinks this is all legit. He's just telling what he saw. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, the engineer is just uh, totally faking the whole thing. Uh, the engineer says, finally, when the second elder resisted. You took an object, you meaning Doctor Who, or the doctor. Uh, you <laughs> took an object from inside your coat and struck him down and killed him. Now, Ian asks whether he's sure it was from the doctor's coat pocket. The engineer says, I tell you, yes, uh, <laughs> because all the sensorites know the doctor because of his distinctive coat. <laughs> you know, he's just digging himself deeper and deeper. And then Ian points out that they had left the ruined coat right outside the aqueduct. And then the engineer <laughs> tries to backpedal and says, then, then it was a cloak he was wearing. Yes, yes, it was. I'm sure mm-hmm. of it now. It was a cloak. And it's pretty lame. <laughs> mm-hmm. The first elder, since he just gave the doctor that cloak, realizes that uh, he's full of blue mud. He orders that uh, <laughs> the engineer should be removed and the administrator... In a scolding manner, says to the engineer, I shall interview you myself, mm-hmm. uh, which is convenient because he'll be interviewing his uh, his colleague in evil. <laughs> so uh, now the administrator is uh, pointing out that the second elder was always opposed to our visitors. Perhaps he stole the firing key in order to attack them with a disintegrator. Uh, at hearing this, Susan jumps on the bandwagon against the poor <laughs> second elder who did nothing wrong. Uh, she speculates that he was the enemy the doctor's been hunting. Mm-hmm. At this point, Susan, Ian, and the doctor, uh, misguidedly, to say the least, all think uh, promoting the city administrator to the position of second elder is a great idea, and they recommend it to the first elder. So the first elder gives him the uh, gives him the proper initiation he says from now on you will be known as the second elder second only in the sense sphere to me and once this order is made only a betrayal of trust can set it aside and we know <laughs> nothing like that will happen <laughs> and not much of an electoral process here <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Susan reminds Ian, uh, weren't we going to bring Barbara down? But he says, this isn't quite the moment. And it's fair. And Ian says, uh, as they're leaving, uh, he turns to the former city administrator, now second elder, and he says, oh, and congratulations. (laughs) The the, uh, administrator, or second elder, now he replies, when you address one of the elders, you call him sir. (laughs) It's a pretty... uh, pretty ungrateful way to speak to the guy who just uh, vouched for you to be become the second elder yeah and, and we see on ian's face a little bit of like hmm what's this all about <laughs> <laughs> yeah in the lab john is recovering he, he's got a little bit of a headache but it goes away pretty fast then carol is crying because it's it's just been so long since she's seen him smile she says <laughs> John thanks the scientist who affected the cure, and it, it, it apparently, so far, it looks like it's working. Mm-hmm. He's acting 
pretty much normal. And he teaches the scientist to shake hands, which is a cute little bit. <laughs> the doctor and Ian and Susan all come into the lab. The doctor tells Carol that he's glad she's not bearing a grudge against the sensorites. And all she cares about now is the future or the present. She says the present, but the future also, I presume. And the doctor, hearing that, says, splendid. And now, sir, the antidote. As soon as, as soon as he's done his mandatory, uh, congratulations, he's off to talk business with the scientist. Uh, so they move, they move off and do their talking. John remembers that he had recognized a plotter even in his dazed state. And the administrator is right there. Important point here, right? I just want to put, he is now the administrator having been promoted to the second elder is wearing the second elder's staff, He's right. the administrator's collar. Yes. Yeah. He's got the second elder's sash on, uh, and the administrator asks him, is he in this room? Meaning, am I in this room? Then <laughs> <laughs> John says, no, he remembers there was something odd about what he was wearing. Can't remember exactly what it was. And the administrator says, yes, it must've been the sensor writer just died. <laughs> the administrator tells Susan uh, rather brusquely to tell the doctor that the first wants to talk to him. He's been summoned to the presence of the first. And he ends his request or his order rather brusquely. He says, you mm. will inform him. <laughs> and and Susan, being a kind soul, she she makes excuses for him uh, you know, to Ian and uh, the others. Uh, she says, well, he's only just become second elder. I should think he's trying out his new authority. Mm -hmm. And, um, well... He is trying out his new authority, but <laughs> it's not really a good excuse. So we see Dr. and Ian talking to a scientist. A scientist says, this is only a sketch of the aqueduct, uh, but I can let you have a plan in detail if you need. And then the scientist offhandedly says something that triggers a thought in Susan. He says that the city administrator shouldn't object uh, to sharing the blueprints with them. That gets Susan putting the pieces together. Uh, she asks the doctor, she says something about the city administrator. The doctor says, what about him? Hmm? And, <laughs> and you're right. The, the doctor is making happen. <laughs> Susan says, John, you know, you said that there was something odd about the sensorite. Was it his collar? And at that point, everybody realizes they've been hoodwinked. And Ian <laughs> points out, quite truthfully, Yes, and the worst of it is we gave him the power. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how Susan put this all together, uh, but, you know, I guess we need to move move things along. And I think Ian somewhere in here also mentions, oh, you know, he was being kind of a jerk to me. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Well, that could be enough, you know, knowing that he hadn't been present wearing, the, wearing his old collar and knowing that he was a jerk. Uh, you know, maybe she was just looking out for a chance to... <laughs> get back at him just just because he wasn't nice to her and she made excuses for him doesn't mean that she didn't take it personally <laughs> but who knows anyway administrative control room the home of the uh the disintegrator uh the administrator is explaining to the engineer that he forgives him you were not to know that the doctor had changed his coat I managed your escape from prison, and that is all that matters. Oh, a convenient little bit of exposition there. That's how mm -hmm. the engineer got out. Engineer is just eager to be helpful, but he doesn't know how he can do that. The administrator shows him two of these hood ornaments that we've 
been seeing from the <laughs> second episode. And he says, can you remove the mechanisms but leave them looking perfect from the outside? So he's going to sabotage these gadgets. Mm -hmm. In the conference room, Ian says, well, sir, the doctor and I have discussed this poison business, and we are convinced that your water supply is being deliberately poisoned. And they're talking to the, the first elder. The doctor says, yes, and what we propose to do, sir, is to go down into the aqueduct, find your enemies, and stop them. And this is the point where the doctor finally asks for Barbara to be brought down from the ship. The first tells the warrior to show the doctor and Ian how to use the weapons. Presumably, they don't ever test fire them, because that would reveal that they were busted. But mm -hmm. uh, he at least uh, will show them how to use them. There's a brief scene in the courtyard where the uh, administrator intercepts a scientist delivering the aqueduct blueprints to the doctor. He says he'll deliver it. And uh, eventually he will, but not before he has the engineer screw up all the routes on the map. Then he'll have it delivered. He has a very intricate uh, plan going on here. It almost reminds me of the Joker in the Dark Knight, where he has these insanely complicated plans. <laughs> mm. We'll see how this comes to fruition. No, oh, yeah. Uh, in the conference room, uh, the doctor and Ian and the warrior are checking out these weapons, and the doctor has a, a line that is uh, something you've alluded to in previous episodes about his uh, opinions on violence and so forth. He says, I've never liked weapons at any time. However, they're handy little things. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and he asked the scientist... Uh, to keep their trip uh, a secret from Susan. Uh, he says, after all, there's no danger now that we have these protectors, and I'm sure we can settle our little business in an hour <laughs> or two. Yeah, it shouldn't take long at all to solve everything and put it all right. <laughs> oh, yeah. No big deal. So now the aqueduct map arrives, and of course it's the map that has been uh, compromised by the engineer's efforts. And then they head off to the aqueduct. The first elder uh, says that he's anxious uh, because he realizes that if the humans didn't kill the second elder, then he must have been killed by a sensorite. The warrior wonders who would do such a thing, and the first elder wonders that himself, not only who, but why. Uh, then there's a scene in the lab, and... Uh, it's just basically John, Carol, and Susan talking about food. So unless you see some special depth in this, I'm going to move <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but, uh, apparently the fruit is very good, though. That's so true. That's nice. Important point. Yeah. Uh, so in the aqueduct, uh, Ian and the doctor get there, and that's another short scene. That's all it is. They get there and they go into the tunnel. I, I guess this is just all quick cuts to show us a lot of things are happening at once, maybe. Carol says, regarding uh, Ian and the doctor, I think I'll go over to the palace of the elders and try and hurry them up because she thinks they're just being delayed or delaying, uh, not realizing they're actually off on their grand adventure to the aqueduct. Mm -hmm. And then there's a bunch of chit-chat between John and Susan, which, again, I didn't find particularly valuable. And then another cut for another quick scene in the courtyard where Carol's standing there looking around, uh, presumably on her way to hurry up the doctor. Then from behind her, a sensorite hand reaches out, 
muffles her, you know, puts the hand over her mouth and drags her away. And this is the cliffhanger at the end of the episode. <laughs> and finally, we have a meaning for the title, <laughs> Kidnapper. <laughs> it yeah. took literally the last couple seconds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and our next episode will be A Desperate Venture. So not surprisingly, we see that the city administrator is the one who kidnapped Carol, mm -hmm. and he's dragged her off to some room, and he explains in detail how there's no one available to help her. The doctor and company are in the caverns, everyone else is somewhere else, so she's totally alone, no one to help. And he insists that she write a letter to John saying she's gone to the spaceship. And it's funny because this is sort of a theme now because <laughs> in the Daleks, the Daleks force Susan to write a letter to the thralls. Mm -hmm. So this idea of writing letters to people to convince them of things um, is, is something they do in these stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and the administrator, uh, and, and this is trying to persuade her, mind you. Uh, he says, your life means nothing to me. Let us strike a bargain. You will write the note. I will let you, I will see you live. Uh, and, uh, sure. It seems legit. <laughs> and the engineer needs to make sure that everything is good with him. He's like, and I shall be given high office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the administrator says he'll reward those who are faithful to him. And we'll see how that works out. <laughs> and I'll note it's. He doesn't say yes. <laughs> I'm going to give you, he, he just says, I reward those who are faithful to me. So what that means, you know. <laughs> and then suddenly we're back to, I think, the first elders' quarters. So John and Susan are in the first elders' quarters, and they're there with Barbara, who's suddenly back. We mentioned earlier, this is because Jacqueline Hill's back from vacation. <laughs> and they have the letter that Carol wrote. And it's a very persuasive letter. It says, I have gone to the spaceship, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> and surprisingly, they're not fooled for a second. <laughs> yeah. The first elder shows up and says, I didn't send Carol to the spaceship, and she wouldn't have been allowed to travel there without my approval. So this story is quickly falling apart. And the first elder insists that no sensorite is holding her, and she's not in the palace. But Susan points out that she had put her finger on the ink on the letter and smudged it so the ink wasn't even dry. So clearly this was written in the palace. The first elder does say, well, there is the disintegrator room. Nobody goes there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and at first, uh, when they want to know where the doctor and Ian have gone, the first elder refuses because they asked him not to tell them. But then he sort of just turns around on a dime and tells them that they've gone into the aqueduct. So. I'm not quite sure why he did that. But <laughs> <laughs> and we switch to the Doctor and Ian in the aqueduct. And interestingly, they have immediately figured out that the weapons they were given, the hood ornament things, have been defanged, that they won't work. And they immediately figure out that the map is useless. So I'll give it that at least the characters, uh, we're seeing a pattern here where the characters in the story are using their brains and they're actually not uh. being fooled for very long by by very thin deceptions <laughs> yeah uh, and also i don't know the answer to this I, I would actually like to find out but uh the doctor and ian in the caverns this is shot very dark and i don't really know how they did that because you know they're in a studio set with a bunch of different sets all in the same space and studios have lots of lights and 
you know, they're going to have to switch from this scene to another scene that's lit up. And yet this is all dark. It makes me think that maybe they recorded the dark stuff separately uh, from everything else. But hmm. I don't know. But, you know, it's just one of those things you think about when you look at it. Yeah. Okay. So we switch to Carol, who's been kidnapped, and the sensorite who is looking over her. She wants some food and drink. She's kind of upset that she wrote this letter that she was supposed to write, but she's getting nothing in return for it. The sensorite, who's the engineer, has this great quote. All humans are naive. They live while they have a purpose. As soon as that purpose is achieved, then their life has no value left. <laughs> Pretty uh, <laughs> severe. Yeah. Behind him, John sneaks in through a door, but the sensorite sees John and threatens to kill Carol. He's holding this device we haven't seen previously that is plugged into the disintegrator console. Yeah, it, uh, it looks like a beard trimmer. Which, uh, given <laughs> well, the state earlier of we had the hair curler and his, yeah, maybe this, uh, disintegrator thing is also a hair salon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but unfortunately because it's plugged into the console and Carol is smart, she grabs it and pulls out the plug. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately doing so starts a fire. <laughs> it seems like maybe we need some OSHA regulations or something around here. I mean, yeah. pulling out a plug really shouldn't start a fire. <laughs> Yeah, it shouldn't, but there you go. Maybe it needs to be grounded. I don't know. <laughs> and John yells at the sensorite to throw it down, and this causes noise pain in the sensorite. And then the warrior comes in. I thought it was a little odd here. John instructs him very directly, take the sensorite to the first elder. Like, John has no power over the first warrior. <laughs> yeah. People. It'd be like a general coming in and he's telling him what to do, <laughs> but the warrior does his bidding. Well, maybe he sees the fire and realizes something weird's going on. Hmm. <laughs> so now we're back in the first elder's quarters and he is upset that the engineer sensorite whom he ordered to be imprisoned has escaped and was holding Carol and the city administrator again, impersonating the second elder says that sensorite should be punished. He's right on board with it. <laughs> but the first elder realizes he must have had an accomplice. The city administrator wants to talk him out of that, but the first elder says, look, if he was holding Carol, there's someone else who was doing the rest of this stuff. So he's on, in a way, he's on to the city administrator, right? He's applying yeah. logic to the situation. Barbara and Susan enter, and they tell the first that the engineer sensorite won't identify who his accomplice was, but he did tell them that the doctor and Ian have been set up. They've been given the fake weapons and the fake map, and they want the first elder to help them save the doctor and Ian. And the first elder kind of contemplates and realizes that the doctor has found a cure for everything, and he's put his life in danger for the sensorite nation, so maybe he should give him all the help he can. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. We switch to the Dr. and Ian in the aqueduct. And I'm going to say these aqueduct sets are pretty convincing. These big pipes and, and grills and everything else. It looks pretty good. Yeah, it, it does look good. I mean, you know, if I wanted to nitpick, the camera angles are pretty selective. I mean, it's not like you're doing big pans here. You're focused on... <laughs> One one vignette at a time, you know, but, uh, but it works. It's good. Mm -hmm. Ian hears something ahead of them, and the doctor improvises a weapon for him by rolling up the map, <laughs> which kind of reminded me of uh, one of the Bourne films where he rolls up a magazine and, and uses it as a weapon. Oh, but, okay. I 
I haven't mm-hmm. seen that one, but I it reminded me of another Ian, uh, Ian Holm. And in the movie Alien, he does mm. the same thing. Oh, that's right. He shoves it down someone's throat, right? Yeah, down um, Ripley's, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. You know, a rolled-up map, I guess, is better than nothing. Sure. Uh, <laughs> a funny thing in how they film this. So Ian is holding this rolled-up map, and, and we're focused on the map, and he moves forward very slowly, <laughs> a couple inches <laughs> at a time. <laughs> Until he encounters some human who whacks the map aside because, you know, a rolled up map is not too (laughs) threatening. (laughs) Ian manages to grab something off of his shoulder, which turns out to be a military identifier. The doctor reads it as I-N-N-E-R. He spells it out. (laughs) But it's actually engineer. Or maybe right. it is engineer, but it looked like we I can only see part of it. We can only see the last half of the word. The right. other part's been obscured, right? <laughs> the doctor says this confirms his suspicion. There are survivors from the spaceship explosion down here in the aqueduct, and they are the ones who are poisoning the water. <laughs> and we are back to Barbara and Susan and the first elder. The first elder shows them a 3D model of the aqueduct. And I'm thinking this kind of would have been useful to show the doctor before he went down there. <laughs> Probably would have, but my, my devil's advocate view on this is that it looks like it's all set up with generic pieces, parts. It looks like something you might do for a real quick wargaming setup. So it might just be an ad hoc model they set up. <laughs> yeah, you always give a very kind interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> now, Barbara asked the first elder if she can use his mind transmitter. Because what she wants to do is she wants to go down into the aqueduct and find them. And she wants to use the mind transmitter to communicate with Susan, who we have learned is telepathic. And they test it out. He lets her do it. And she puts the stethoscope to her head and communicates with Susan. And it works. My disappointment was I really wish they'd done a card trick as part of this. You know, what, <laughs> what card am I holding up? But, uh, oh, yeah. That would, have been the, that would have been the acid test. Yeah. <laughs> now, because Barbara is going to go down into the cavern, she asked for a warrior to be provided to protect Susan, who's going to be here directing them. And Susan says to the first elder, we need one that you can entrust implicitly. This is very problematic <laughs> because <laughs> the first elder says, I trust all sense rights. <laughs> it's like, dude, have you been following the story so far? <laughs> you have come to realize that there's a sense right who kidnapped people and someone who's killed people. And you know, sense rights have done this. And yet your default position is still, I trust all sense rights. <laughs> <laughs> Susan actually calls him on this. She says, trust can't be taken for granted. It must be earned. And the first elder thinks about this and kind of realizes he has some things to learn from these earthlings. (laughs) And now we have a first in Doctor Who history. Susan Mm -hmm. describes the home world that she and the doctor came from. She says, it's ages since we've seen our planet. It's quite like Earth, but at night the sky is a burnt orange and the leaves on the trees are bright silver. Doesn't sound great to me, but she she sounds, (laughs) sounds fond of it. I guess that could be the result of a nuclear war or something, burnt orange and bright silver. But yeah, she likes it. And the first elder senses an interesting thing about Susan. He says that she both wants to go home, but she also has a wanderlust. She wants to travel, but she wants to go home. Hmm. 
And the first elder says now that he thinks maybe he'll let them leave. <laughs> Mighty nice of him after all this, them oh, trying yeah. to save his entire civilization. <laughs> <laughs> we switch to Dr. and Ian in the aqueduct. They're wandering around, chatting, and Ian sees a man, and he tries to warn the doctor. And the doctor is in the middle of talking, and the doctor says, Oh, don't interrupt, dear boy. It's most irritating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this must be one of the oldest tropes there is, dripping. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, very appropriate for the doctor. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> Not it's like he character. would interrupt anyone else or anything. <laughs> <laughs> and then it turns out there's a cave dweller on each side of them, armed with a big carved wooden spear. And one of them says, you have come at last. Are they all dead? And the doctor says, the sensorites, you mean? And apparently that's what they were asking. And they interrogate the doctor and Ian about whether they have a spaceship and whether they've led anyone else down here. And one of them says, follow me. He will have to talk to you. Yes, the commander. Okay, very mysterious. <laughs> so now we're back to Susan and Carol. Susan is directing Barbara and John. And in this... Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Th th this amused me because it wasn't 15 seconds earlier that uh, uh, Ian assured these cave guys that uh, there aren't any more of them. <laughs> They're, these two are putting the lie to that. And we have the uh, Susan and Barbara uh, strategizing about how to make all this telepathy work. There's a suggestion, speak the words as you think them, which... Uh, I thought it was interesting, both because if such a thing existed, it probably would work to emphasize it by speaking at the same time. And uh, secondly, because it's a handy little plot device that they can mm -hmm. use to for <laughs> exposition. Mm -hmm. hey, Dr. and Ian, then, um, and the people they've encountered ask them to give us their word that they are alone. <laughs> and the doctor says, oh, yes, definitely. As far as he knows. Okay, so Barbara and John, who are down in the aqueduct looking for the Doctor and Ian, find a map on the floor, and they realize it's the bogus map, and it must have been discarded, even though it was a useful weapon. <laughs> and then they're going along, and they're realizing that there are these wooden columns in the tunnels, and the doctor has been using chalk to mark them as they go along, and they find the chalk marks and they follow them. So very smart on the doctor's part. Yeah. Little breadcrumb trail. Yeah. And so now the doctor and Ian have been brought to the commander, who's really a very chatty, bright-eyed dude. He's really <laughs> uh, has a good attitude. Everything's going great. <laughs> he directs to one of the minions who, who brought the doctor and Ian to him. He says... Pipe it into pipe number seven this time. Yeah, and uh, the one they detected the poison in earlier was uh, number eight. Uh, so I wonder if they're working backwards from number 10. <laughs> I'm not sure. Not very subtle, but okay. <laughs> and the doctor tells the commander, we have a surprise for you. The war with the sensorites is over. The commander says, the planet's ours now, is it? Completely? And the doctor and Ian tell him it is... This struck me as a strange thing for them to lie about. I mean, why not just say, well, we're almost on good terms with them if you guys don't screw it up any further. Uh, because the British, I mean, they've, they've been in a war or two and they're, they're pretty used to 
reconciling with their former enemies at this point. So <laughs> I'm not sure what they hope to gain by just outright lying here. Yeah. And the commander talks to them about the fact that he had a fine spaceship, but two of his men deserted. And the doctor says, so you had to blow up your spaceship. And he says, yeah, but now I'm going to be able to afford a new spaceship because of all the riches on this planet. And he makes it very clear. He wants to make a legal claim right now. He says, me and my men have fought this war, so any treasure trove is ours. <laughs> okay, good to know. One of his minions, who he calls Number One, so this uh, also they do this in Star Trek, where he had Number One. Mm. So the Number One minion says, a warning in Tunnel 2 has been triggered. And immediately, the commander, who has been totally on board with the Doctor and Ian, becomes suspicious, says, these guys are spies, the war isn't actually over, just because this warning has been triggered. And he orders an immediate court-martial. <laughs> no time taking whatsoever. We're going to put these people on trial. <laughs> and out of nowhere, Barbara and John show up and hug the doctor and Ian. And the doctor makes up a pretty implausible lie to the commander. <laughs> he says, yeah. these people are part of the committee here to welcome you. <laughs> so after they have said, we're alone, there's no one else down here. Now it's a welcoming committee for the commander. <laughs> <laughs> and while they're lying, Barbara, who's usually on top of it and very intelligent, she almost spoils it because she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and then the commander says to number one, assemble the men. We'll be leaving immediately. Now, I'm just going to put a little pin here. Assemble the men sounds like there's a bunch of men down here. <laughs> Let's see how that comes yeah, out. <laughs> I think it should be assemble the man. <laughs> exactly. Uh, meanwhile, the Sensorite head of the warriors makes some arrangements to make sure that when they come out of the aqueduct that they won't be able to get back in. So he tells one of his people, once they come out, block the aqueduct. So they can't come back in. And then the group on emerging from the aqueduct, immediately number one and number two are taken away. But there's nobody else. <laughs> so number one <laughs> and number two were the entirety of the men. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the commander then comes out and he realizes they've been screwed and he runs at the head warrior and the head warrior holds up his hood ornament weapon <laughs> and <laughs> uses it on him. And the commander falls over. And the warrior says to the doctor, I could have killed him. I wanted to, but that would not be the way, would it? Mm -hmm. And the doctor says, no, this shows great promise for the future of your people, that you didn't kill this guy who's been poisoning your society. So I'm yeah. going to actually say, as someone who's not really in favor of wars and everything, if someone has poisoned some percentage of your entire society and you wanted to kill them, I'm not going to really object that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's justifications. Go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now we switch to Barbara and Ian and the First Elder, and Barbara says, these guys really thought they were at war with you. And this, we'll talk about it later a little more. I mean, this is one of the things the author wanted to explore, which is the idea that after a war is over, you know, you have this myth or, I think it's occasionally true where there are people in the mountains or whatever who, who spend decades continuing to fight the war, not realizing it's actually over. And that's, that's yeah. what he wanted to explore here. The first elder informs them that he's banishing the city administrator slash fake <laughs> second. Well, I guess not fake at this point. He was appointed second elder. He's banishing him to the outer wastes. 
I kind of felt like after the evilness of this guy, banishing him to the outer waste seems a little bit too good for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd think, but but these are uh, these are peaceful people. They're evolving away from <laughs> killing and all that nice stuff. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although presumably, I mean, it's not going to be a really great experience in the outer waste. <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly uh, an appealing vacation name. It reminds me of Fallout. It feels like they're sending them out to <laughs> yeah. the uh, the Fallout universe. Yep. Uh, and now the first elder tells them that the lock on the TARDIS has been restored, so they'll be able to return. And we switch to the TARDIS, and the Doctor and Susan are there waiting for Ian and Barbara. But Susan seems depressed, and it turns out the sensorites have explained to her that her psychic powers aren't going to work outside of the sense sphere. <laughs> And I think this is really cruel because it's like, here's this one interesting trait for your character, but we're now making it very clear <laughs> you're not actually going to be able to use it going forward. Screw you, Susan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, they, they could, I don't, I, I guess maybe they don't if you say they don't, but they could at least make it like she's psychically sensitive. So some planets she's got it, some, mm -hmm. you know, it's more dampened. I don't know. Yeah, Apparently, but it's no, just it's like, nope, the we're taking it away now. <laughs> <laughs> and so then uh, Barbara and Ian join them, and they all watch on the monitor the human spaceship leaving. And here we have a very interesting twist. You know, the, they've all been working together the last couple stories. They've been gelling. Mm -hmm. Ian looks at the spaceship leaving, going back to Earth, and he says, well, at least they know where they're going. <laughs> and the doctor does not take this well. He goes ballistic. And he says, you're implying I don't? <laughs> and now we're back to the edge of destruction doctor. He's going to put them off of the ship at the very next opportunity. Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, at first, I thought that the doctor looked kind of like he had a faint smile on his face to me. I thought he was just kind of giving him a little ribbing. Uh, but then he's, he, he gets more serious, so it's not clear to me what's going to happen next. Uh, so we'll see. And this is the end of the story, so we will find out next time. <laughs> now, time to discuss some of the themes and aspects of this story. And, and I'm going to say, I think, really interesting. We'll get into it as we go along. But I, here's what I'll put up front. There's, I think, a future documentary on one of the DVDs. It's not on the Sensorized DVD, but it's a future one where they explore how people react to this story. And it turns out that crusty old Doctor Who people like me tend to react negatively to this story. Hmm. But people who are new to Doctor Who actually tend to like it. Hmm. So let's uh, we'll explore as we go along and see what we think about this. Um, first of all, let's talk about the sensorites. <laughs> it seems like a noble attempt at an alien species. And, and one of the things I will say about this whole story, and I think it's both a credit to the story, but also mystifying. The writer, Peter R. Newman, put a lot of thought. There's a lot of intricacies into this story. And yet, for someone who put so much thought into it, there's so many things that just don't make sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the sensorites... <laughs> exemplify this and i know you have a few things to say so <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I, I basically, uh, this morning while I was working on my notes, I basically put together a whole TED talk. So I'm not gonna, I'm not <laughs> gonna do that whole thing, but I'll, I have a few points to make, uh, about ways in which, you know, we, we mentioned the, that scientist who sounded remorseful when, uh, he pointed out that it, it's hard living without eyelids. Yeah. So, so that's the first <laughs> point. They can't blank, you know, so before light bulbs, they had smoky campfires or dust storms or breezes, you know, how do they deal with all that? They got loud <laughs> noises that cause them pain. So if they get thunder or birds or they drop pots and pans, they got pain. They got darkness, which <laughs> makes them panic and drop their pots and pans, which causes pain. <laughs> they got monsters they can't fight because the monsters are noisy and they live in darkness. Then they've got radioelectric radio lights that they can't use. I don't know why. Maybe because their eyes are so bad that the lights aren't bright enough to help. Maybe, uh, well, the next point is they can't recognize each other without the sashes or collars or stripes. Uh, that beard trimmer could come in handy for some individual styling, but they'd probably be considered too individual, and the first elder would shut them <laughs> down for that. They can't recognize simple patterns like a sickness that strikes one district at a time. Uh, they've got a caste system where some people are denied opportunities. You know, if you're a lower caste, you can't buy crystal water. If you're an elder, you can have crystal water, but you can't have crystal head vodka or crystal Pepsi. <laughs> it's just water all the way down. So, you know, that maybe they'll take that delicious fruit and invent fruit infused water or maybe they'll even discover fermentation but for now they've just got water <laughs> and that's really a lousy way to live uh and then women they don't apparently have any women or we don't see mm -hmm. them if they do or maybe there's just no sexual dimorphism so you can't <laughs> tell women apart whatever whatever the way however it works the society is diminished for the lack and uh that said, this could explain their inability to tell each other apart because in lieu of something useful like being able to tell each other apart, maybe they developed this high reliance on trust instead to substitute for it. So all these points support not only my thesis that their lives are horrible, but also <laughs> a corollary theory is that there is no plausible evolutionary path that could lead directly <laughs> to the sensorites. So I think they were engineered to be the harmless, floppy-footed servants of a more evolved race. And then their masters died off, maybe out of sheer horror at what they had created. <laughs> so it's basically the history of Assassin's Creed on another planet, except the sensorites can't produce competent assassins. I'm glad we got our video game reference into this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's uh that that's that's my story and I'm sticking to it. You know, life <laughs> as a sensor aid is probably miserable for everyone in every cast. Yeah. So let's talk. Uh so first of all, yeah, that's that's a good epic rant. And I think <laughs> oh. and and I'm gonna be honest, we go along. Um when I first watched this story. I had not read anything about the Doctor Who community's reaction, so I had no idea what anybody else thought. And honestly, I liked the story. I mean, mm -hmm. even with all the stuff that you mentioned, which I recognize, I still liked the story. But it's not a story that I would sit 
we talked about this before. It's not a story that I would sit someone down and say, look at Doctor Who. Do you like this? <laughs> mm, yeah. Even though, as I mentioned, it seems that people who are new to Who tend to like it more than people who are immersed in Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's talk about the story. I mentioned for all the holes in it, it's still a complex and intricate story. And, and yeah. the writer worked out a lot of things. And we see, for example, in that whole plot line where the city administrator uses all these events that have happened to craft a story that mm-hmm. is false, but uses real events that occurred to make it work. That's actually pretty complex. Yeah. There's a lot of cases where uh, he'll meet some setback and he'll just be, uh, okay, I can, I can work this into it. You know, I can, yeah. I can use this. <laughs> <laughs> so he, yeah, he's always coming up roses until the end. <laughs> yeah. We have a lot of themes in this. Um, the idea of foreigners bringing disease is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the human showed up, then this disease occurred. Now, in this case, that's kind of true. I mean, they don't fully explain it, but presumably, well, they do in the sense that they don't put together all the dots about exactly how the humans are poisoning the water, but we can kind of figure it out. And so mm-hmm. I guess that's true. The foreigners really did bring disease in this case. Yeah. Yeah, they had their belladonna plants growing down there, and you know, we don't know how many of them they had, all told. They may have had enough to do the whole city over time. Right. We have a big theme of trust versus paranoia, right? So they've been screwed over by the humans before. They're now confronted with a new batch of humans. Do we trust them or not? And do we act in a peaceful manner or a warlike manner? So you have the first elder whose impulse is to be trusting. And you have the city administrator whose impulse is the reverse. And... At different times, both of them are correct, right? Yeah the uh, the second elder character in particular, uh, yeah, he was he was a neat guy because he, like you had pointed out earlier, he's, you know, he's the he's the mediator almost. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's the tempering force between the overly trusting and the the evil bastard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, another big one here. The doctor's personality in this story really changes in a lot of ways. So first, as we talked about, he acts as a scientist in a way he hasn't previously, and future iterations of the doctor won't do so much. But this particular doctor really establishes himself as a scientist. And also, as we already talked about, he establishes himself as someone not to be screwed with. Mm -hmm. If you come up against me, I'm going to defeat you. That's very different. Yeah. And finally, so I'll, I'll give you one more chance to <laughs> decide this. Uh, so. so we have the, the about time thing where they said there's one moment in this story that is the most important for the rest of the series for the doctor. Uh, so this is the, this is the three door problem. Do I stick with my previous guess <laughs> or do I uh, yeah. choose or Monty the other Hall. One. Yeah. We have yeah. A, a beautiful model over here. <laughs> <laughs> which, which uh, curtain are you going to go with? <laughs> so I'm. I'm going to guess that uh, you fools doesn't actually become <laughs> the doctor's catchphrase. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I I was tempted to say that it's it's where the doctor suddenly just does an about face at the end of the uh, the last episode. But you said it was episode four where the moment comes. So I mm. I really don't have a guess. Okay. 
Well, here is their claim. Up to now, the doctor has been very selfish, right? He's been curious, but he hasn't been particularly interested in helping or saving anybody. Mm-hmm. He typically just, you know, either wants to go out and explore and see what's up or get back to the TARDIS and leave. <laughs> yeah. So About Time says the moment that defines the rest of the series is the moment that he decides to go into the caverns hmm. because he already has a cure. He can already cure Ian. He could cure Ian. They could find some way to convince the first elder to make them leave and they'd be done. Mm-hmm. But he decides, I need to save this entire society, and he puts his life at risk to go down into the caverns and see what's going on. Hmm. And that's their claim. This changes the Doctor's approach and personality in a way that defines the rest of the series. That makes sense. And and, and it does actually have uh, an effect later in the show in the, you know, the first Elder becomes convinced that because he put his neck on the line, uh, you know, he, he's, he has more confidence in the trustworthiness of the humans. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I can buy that, sure. And, and it also, in the long run, potentially should make for for a nicer show or maybe even a better show if, if the doctor <laughs> has a little bit more, uh, right. you know, kindness yep. or benevolence. Definitely. They have a highly structured society. We talked about the benevolent authoritarianism. Yeah. Historically, it's interesting. A, a benevolent leader or someone who's perceived as a benevolent leader doesn't always help, right? If the people working for them have other agendas, or even if people think the leader is benevolent, but maybe they are not. So one of the classic things you hear about the Soviet Union under Stalin Many of the people believed that Stalin was a benevolent leader. And mm-hmm. when the local leaders would do very bad things, what they would say is, if only Uncle Joe Stalin knew what you were doing, he would stop you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also that was kind of a dark punchline among the Russians who weren't quite so trusting. You know, what is <laughs> that? Uh, but yeah, it's uh, just. I mean, yeah, I know we don't we don't get too political on this podcast, but <laughs> I'll just say my personal opinion is I don't like authoritarianism. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Yeah, we don't get political, <laughs> but we'll we'll stand against authoritarianism. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get to your final result, talk about the community reaction. I mean, I already said that we found that in general. Long-time Doctor Who people tend to like this less. I think they find all the stuff that you talked about with the censor rights to be embarrassing. Mm-hmm. People new to Doctor Who tend to enjoy it more. Um, and, you know, when I originally watched it, as I said, I liked it. And I still like it, but it's not something that I would introduce a new person to. I, I, all the weird stuff about the sense rights, I think, would just be distracting. So that's my opinion. Now, I will say, one of the well-known, both a writer of a future, a long future episode of Doctor Who in the Modern Era is Rob Shearer, and he's also been a co-author on a book about Doctor Who. And he said in an interview that only people who are trying to be contrarians would say they like this story. And having... <laughs> Having come to it fresh, I was a little bit offended because I'm like, I liked the story. <laughs> ah. um, so 
with all that, what is your final determination on this story? Uh, yeah, actually, if I wouldn't, I wouldn't use it to maybe introduce people to the show, but, uh, you know, so from the standpoint of somebody walks into the room and you're watching it and you tell them to sit down, uh, probably not. Uh, <laughs> if somebody was just interested in seeing the show and, you know, actively interested rather than just a potential victim to be dragged down to the couch, <laughs> uh, I'd say I, I liked it. I, I mean, yes, there are some, there are some holes in it and, uh, you know, we've talked about those, but, uh, um, but it was a fun story and there's, I especially enjoyed in the later episodes, there are just all these reversals one after another and, you know, subversion of your expectations where mm -hmm. people turn out to be a lot more or a lot smarter than you expect them to be. Uh, and yet it just keeps moving, ping ponging back and forth. So I'd say for just a general audience that, that had some interest in Doctor Who, I'd say, the storyline overall, I'd, I'd say, is fun. Uh, if you want the abridged version, maybe skip the first two episodes and watch <laughs> the last four. But as an introduction to somebody who wasn't especially interested in getting into the Doctor Who world, this probably isn't the introduction to it. So, we're effectively, we're officially not recommending it, even though we have some affection for the story. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm not re recommending it as the uh, as the seductive invitation to Doctor Who, <laughs> but for anybody right. who's casually interested in Doctor Who, it's fun. Right. And that's that line that people like me have a hard time with, because I can't tell the difference anymore between <laughs> I'm really into Doctor Who, you should watch this, versus so, you know, someone new to it would say, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Next up will be... The Reign of Terror. So come back next time to see what we think of that. Did you have anything you wanted to say in there? A uh, question. I noticed mm -hmm. on BritBox the episodes end at... Uh, this one, the Sensorites. I don't think the Reign of Terror. Well, is yeah, on that's why I sent you the DVD, and hmm. we will, you know, I'll talk about it in the intro next time. The deal is that two of the episodes were lost totally, hmm. and they have been replaced with animated versions. And this is the weird thing for something that was done relatively recently. The only thing I can surmise, because BritBox has nothing that has animated episodes in it. So the only thing I can surmise is that they didn't do a contract where they could stream the stuff with animated episodes, which makes no sense in the modern world. Hmm. So for anything that has animated episodes, you have to either order the DVD or watch it on Amazon Prime or something. Hmm. I think that's disappointing because while I don't like the uh, still shot photo reconstructions where they just show one person's picture for a while while the dialogue goes on. The animated ones, I think actually work out really well. They're totally watchable. So, hmm. so yeah, so the next one, you'll need to use that DVD I sent you. Okay. And when we get to the next doctor, Patrick Troughton, I have a whole bunch to send you because a whole lot of his stories were wiped and have now been animated 
with the interesting aspect for me that I have not seen almost any of those because hmm. they came out recently uh, with the animation. So it's it's going to be new to me. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So anything else about this before I stop the recording? Uh, no, I think we covered it. You fool!